and many world championships and many Olympic goals does Paul O'Donnell need to win to be the greatest sports person of all time in Ireland is there a number can we pick a number because he's going to do it OTB AM live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB sports app OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar Good morning and welcome to OTBAM. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties with recording the start of this morning's podcast. We pick up here with Jer and Owen discussing Joel Schmidt's new role with the All Blacks. Keane, for example, who says, you know, he won't get back into management, he's happy enough with punditry. I guarantee you in a year's time, even less, there will be another story about Roy Keane linking him back into management. I don't know why I'm using him as an example, he's just the most obvious one. That that, that competitive drug that people can't get in their post-coaching or post-playing lives just can't be replicated by anything else. And Joe Schmidt's exactly the same. Like, And I'm sure his family are fantastic. Best family of all time, possibly. And it still doesn't matter unless they are, unless his family are like 15 rugby union players who he's willing to coach into battle. Like, it's just not the same. You can't have a have a life and get that same level of, of fulfilment, I suspect, if you've already achieved incredible things. Like, and as you say, like on a on a technical level, this is probably going to be exactly what the All Blacks need. Um, even just kind of looking at it from a from afar, just giving them the parameters parameters within which they can be brilliant. And I mean, maybe the kind of blunt instrument approach to analysing this is that he didn't necessarily think that the Irish players uh, or some of the Irish players were good enough to you know trust with offloads or whatever. Whereas you would think that he would possibly have a bit more trust in some of the New Zealand players. I'm not sure if that's the truth or not, but there, there was definitely you could definitely make that case that maybe uh, the Irish players weren't trusted enough. Uh, at the end of his reign. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how they all respond to each other. Like, you'd be surprised if he can't learn from the experiences of Ireland at the World Cup and evolve. And, you know, he's had a long time essentially watching how the world of rugby was evolving with his central role, which didn't last very long. But then he goes back to New Zealand and gets time with everybody, gets time wandering around, looking at everything. And now he's officially getting his hands dirty on a day-to-day basis. It's, um, It's a very gentle reintroduction to it. And he's had the opportunity to see what the what the travel schedule is like. It's also short term. If he, if maybe he just comes and does this for the World Cup, they win the World Cup, and he rides off into the sunset. That would be amazing. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm sure that's probably what he's thinking as well, or what New Zealand rugby are thinking. But like a week is such a long time in the storyline. Like uh, this time last week, Foster was gone. Yeah, now they've got Schmidt, and they've just beaten the world champions yeah. in their backyard. And it, uh, like, if they were to win the World Cup, you presume Foster would stay around for like a victory lap too. That's that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that if Schmidt is successful, Foster would also be successful. And for him to get the, I, I still think Scott Robertson is probably next in line. And um, maybe, hard to know though, right? Because if if they win a World Cup, then Foster will get the next World Cup cycle. That's a long time. Yeah, I guess so. And what, will he get the next World Cup cycle, or, or will he be like, "Screw you! I've won the World Cup now." At this point, you were the people. Um, like he'll turn around to New Zealand rugby, and like you didn't necessarily. I think I would. There in my time I think if, yeah, I think I would take the four years extra if I was like. I mean, I yeah, I got you through a sticky patch, and then I won a World Cup, so I'm taking the the victory lap here, lads. Yeah, is there an easier job though than coaching the All Blacks for Ian Foster? Like, can he take a victory lap? On, on something that more resembles an armchair than the All Blacks gig maybe, maybe something in England one of those English clubs I don't know perhaps where the the owners are like ah you won a World Cup come and, come and bring half your team with you for the next three years in the Premiership yeah yeah. it's hard, it's hard to know how, how it'll um, play out but are we saying now this morning that they're back in the mix back in the contention mix for the World Cup next year I think we probably are um, don't write them off anyway yeah well, certainly you can understand if their odds were to come in a little bit overnight you can see why that would have happened uh, Elon Musk has tweeted this morning that he's buying Manchester United um, oh nice one there have been rumours that Manchester United are for sale no one's kind of printed them but there have been rumours that they are for sale and so somebody like him 
could easily buy Man United. That would be, um, I definitely would say that that would add to the level of soap opera that is, is going on at the moment. Would it though? I mean, yes. has, has uh, Manchester United not, not already reached the point where even the introduction of one of the weirdest billionaires in the world wouldn't make it weirder? I mean, certainly it would be like uh, the desperation of the scriptwriters has reached new levels. Yeah, <laughs> like introduce a new character. What is it? Oh, Elon Musk. He'll do. Yeah, they like, uh, like the scriptwriters. They've just invented dragons, and uh, it's just added a whole new layer to the whole thing. Uh, like, I mean, I, I guess, like he did, he did tweet before saying I'm by Twitter, and I guess he did eventually do that. Well, he didn't in the end. Twitter are now oh, suing yeah. him because he's Wait, trying. Sorry, what's the story there? Twitter are suing him because he's pulled out of uh, buying I Twitter. I completely missed this. Yeah, oh, yeah. So he, he when did it stop? <laughs> he didn't buy Twitter. Oh, right, okay. The deal, the deal has not been consummated. I need to, um, I need to keep up the speed yeah, I mean, on my I, Elon Musk affair is a bit more, don't I? Literally, you've seen the story about Google and the Google founder, and, and I mean, I don't know if. The, the laws in America are different from the laws here, but you should all Google that. You're not allowed to broadcast this to the nation. Well, it's just no, you can't. Uh, there's the biggest divorce case I think since the last biggest divorce case is, is up, and um, apparently, yeah, just better stop there now. <laughs> Seven forty-six this morning. Yeah, somebody's uh, becoming very rich. Um, it's the long and short of it. Well, I, like he could afford it. Do you know? <clears throat> yeah. Like, well, who would be his first signing? Uh, you know, like if, if Todd Bowley has become very hands-on at Chelsea, you would suspect that Musk would become quite hands-on at Manchester United. Like would the the Stratford end reveal a tifo to uh, honour Elon Musk in this in a similar way to the way uh, Stamford Bridge did the other day? Yes, straight away because it's not Glazer. All of that whole um, oh we're 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 the best fans because we're we're standing up against this thing uh, would would disappear. Um, I don't know. At least I'd get a new roof on uh, Old Trafford. Yeah, can, can he like? Uh, could he fix the and insert a, a big screen? I, can, I guess that's probably one of the the, the big, um, the big things he needs to do. But I, I guess people are getting excited about this. Like, I mean, you see a tweet from it. It's like you've got to cling to anything that uh, that resembles a new life that 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 gives Manchester United fans life after Glazers, right? That's so I can see why people will be um, be hoping that this is this is real, even though the idea itself is pretty terrible. Uh, yeah, I, look, I, I don't know. I actually don't know what kind of an owner of a football club he'd be like. You suspect that there'd be a lot of intervention and there'd be a lot of, um, you know, it's not for the good of the club. It's for personal glory. Let's not Peter end the bush here. It's for the advancement of uh, brand Elon. And, um, you know, you can you can definitely see how Man United would have a bunch of uh, NFTs and um, they'd be paying their players in Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. And it will be like, oh, look how progressive we are. If that's what progress looks like, then fair enough. Uh, Apparently this is a long-running joke on Twitter, according to Musk himself. I'm not buying any sports teams, he says. Right. 087-9-180-180 yeah. is the WhatsApp number. So I wish I go. knew the joke. Um, I mean, you kind of want to... You kind of want to... You know, pay less attention to Elon Musk in your life is uh, one of those good things that you should do. Uh, I, I do think, though, that it's time for us to get to the, the most important story of the entire day which is um, I think we can all agree that Martin Brehney is the preeminent Gaelic football Gaelic games journalist of this or any other generation and so therefore when he produces one of his many lists that uh, we can assume that it is the definitive and final and uh, you know it's the he's the C and I mean that in the old Irish sense of of, of Gaelic games, journalism, and so the wisdom 
that he imparts to us must be acknowledged, accepted, and we must move on from it there and agree that that is the final arbiter of everything. The salmon of knowledge. Correct. Well, he, he's, he's eaten the salmon of knowledge. Yeah. He's the kid who, who's... Stuck the finger in. Yeah. He stuck the finger in the salmon. Well, I just think it's important that we, we accept this. Do we accept this? Are, you, are we on the same page here? Are we, are we accepting? Are we, are we wearing the same hoodie? Just what's going course? on? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Where do you get yours? You're supposed to ring me. Where do you get yours? In Duns. No, I didn't get mine in Duns. Uh, so he's, he's going through the um, top champion of champions, it's called, 1972 to 2022. Right. So are we accepting the premise of my argument here, Owen? Yes or no? No. Yes, we are. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Boylan's Royal Warriors were more than just hard-nosed achievers. So he, he's a big fan of Sean Boylan's team, which obviously has Coyler and O'Rourke and Stafford and Bernard Flynn and that team. So the late 80s mm-hmm. is the team. Um, and there's a figure here for it. Between 86 and 91, Meade won 24, drew 5 and lost 4 of 33 championship games. No backdoor, obviously. So no opportunity for them after they were beaten. And he's gone through the list of all the All-Ireland champions since uh, 1972. Um, so we're down to the last six me they're sixth he's decided notwithstanding all the praise he's given them they're sixth still to be judged right the Dublin team from 2011 to 2020 they were good at football for sure the Kerry team from 75 to 86 they're your favourites right uh, ever well that was okay. I wait, I don't know. go on keep du- the list going Dublin 74 76 77 okay and there's two other teams still to be ranked. Who do you think the other two teams to be ranked? Uh, Tyrone and Kerry. Tyrone and Kerry. From what de- from what what decade is this? The 2000s. Right. Team of the noughties, right? Number six is Mead from '87 to '88. Number five is Kerry. Number five is Kerry. Oh four, oh six, oh seven, oh nine. Kerry won the oh four, oh six, oh seven, oh nine All Ireland Finals by an average of almost nine points. Yeah, but sure, that's that, that's why they're no good, isn't that? Isn't Kingdom that right? team of 2000s did well to lift Sam four times, but Legacy was weakened by one-sided finals and their inability to solve the Tyrone riddle. And how long is a decade, tell me? They couldn't solve the Tyrone how, riddle. How long is a decade? Legacy weakened. Legacy weakened, Owen. The, the Grandmaster, Grandmaster Flash, Martin Brownie, has said the fifth best team of the last 50 years is the Kerry team from 04, 06, 07 and 09 which means that Tyrone must be better than them and so therefore QED buddy they consider are the me, team of the decades consider me checkmated by there the Grandmaster go. indeed there you go yeah unfortunately I'm glad that we've solved this unfortunately now. for you there is like there's like a whole other swathe of years that are included in a decade like there is like a whole other All-Irelands like the, the the shiny thing called Sam Maguire that Kerry won before that team even started like I mean when you're judging the team of a decade Ten years are involved. That's how long a decade is, as opposed to five or six. Yeah, but the Toronto team are a better team than the Kerry team, according to Martin Brenny. I can't, I can't, I can't fix it. On, I didn't, I didn't bribe the man. I didn't, I didn't no involvement in, in like convincing him of this. I didn't, you know. Now he's never watched the show. He doesn't know that this is the longest running gag we have. It's not a gag. It definitely is not a gag. It's not a gag at all. Four o'clock in the morning, you're like, I'm the happiest I've ever been. I need to just <laughs> fix this now. Record. <laughs> I would, that would be funny if that was like not true um, but yeah like again the Sunday game montage at the start of the year team of the noughties Kerry yeah I mean Sunday game what do they know who's gonna who's gonna beat that uh, I would I would hold Martin Brenty in much higher esteem than 
the copy editor of the Sunday game. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Let's get this thing out. I've got 50 more of these to do. He's been thinking about this for years. Yeah. He's like taking every single piece of GA knowledge that he knows and he is a GA man. He's taken it all and he's put it together and he's pieced it into the jigsaw and the jigsaw piece number six it means piece number five is carries means at least four maybe three is Tyrone QED. Yeah, it's a bit of uh, yeah, I've been humbled. I'm glad we got to solve this on. It was important to wrap up any loose ends. We brought in an, an invigilator and uh, consider the argument invigilated. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. There's one other thing that we wanted to talk about. Patrick Reed, this is the story. I was looking for it in the uh, printed paper, but it's not there just yet. Mm. This is uh, very funny. Um, What's going on? Pa- Patrick Reed. Everybody's favourite golfer. Has filed a $750 million defamation suit. <laughs> a lot of money. <laughs> against Golf Channel and commentator. Brandel Chambly. So, uh, Brandel Chambly, uh, most people will know as a relatively controversial um, voice on Golf Channel. Uh, a lot of the golfers don't seem to like him. He's had uh, a few issues in the past, but he's now uh, being sued uh, by Patrick Reed uh, because apparently himself and Commissioner Jay Monaghan have defamed Reed since he was 23 years of age. So, The Guardian have printed the entire document that Reid and his lawyer have produced and uh, just some absolutely incredible stuff in it. They say, It is well known on tour that Mr Reid has been abused and endured more than any other golfer from fans or spectators who have been allowed to scream obscenities only to be glorified by NBC's Golf Channel for so long. Chambly has become Golf Channel's primary mouthpiece and agent to push his defamatory agenda and inflict severe damage to Mr Reid, Liv and other golfers signed with Liv. So uh, Patrick Reed seems to be going to bat for a lot of Liv golfers in general. It's not the first time that Reed's had a bit of a head-to-head with Chambly in January 2020. He sent a cease and desist letter demanding he not repeat accusations that he cheated during a tournament. This was with regards to the two-stroke penalty that he got at the, the Hero World Challenge in 2019 for improving his line at Bunker. Reed says he didn't intend to do so. Chambly kept saying he was cheating. So... Chambly uh, kept this going over the years and he made a remark during the live situation that Reed would have no problem playing golf for Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Paul Pot and Vladimir Putin. And then uh, you've got Reed's lawyer saying this statement is false because Mr. Reed never aligned himself with a tyrannical murderous leader. He's playing golf for Liv, which simply happens to be financed by the PIF, which has invested in and financed some of the nation's and the world's largest and respected corporations. And this is an interesting argument. They say this would be akin to stating that LeBron James has aligned himself with a tyrannical murderous leader because he plays in the NBA, which has intricate lies, uh, intricate ties to the People's Republic of China, whose government is accused of a current and ongoing genocide against the Muslim Uyghur people. There is also some other uh, astonishing uh, sentences in the document. Um, there's this kind of like put down of Chambly. Um, in this regard, defendant Chambly, a former professional golfer who fell far short of ever rising to the accomplished level of Mr. Reed and wow. the current analyst for Golf Channel, wow. has become golf's uh, primary mouthpiece and agent to push this defamatory agenda. Uh, and they also say it is clear what Chambly, on behalf of his co-conspirator Golf Channel, is doing. He has shown himself to be a disciple of the Skip Bayless School of Sports Analysis, the fundamental tenet of which is that it is more important to be loud than it is to be correct. Chambly has followed this false playbook religiously down to fabricating a feud with an elite at the top of their game. In Bayless's case, LeBron James, and in Chambly's case, first Tiger Woods, and then Mr. Reed, in order to leech attention and notoriety. Uh, my favourite uh, part of this whole thing, though, is that you've got a situation in this where the, the lawyer lists the entire 
list of heckles that Patrick Reed has received on the golf course as a result of what Patrick uh, because of what Chambly has said on the golf channel so uh, according to the complaint these included personal attacks but are not limited to now on the tee the excavator you suck you effing suck you jackass you coward shovel you piece of SH1T no one likes you everyone hates you um, good luck digging yourself out of this one where are your parents you cheater cheat Everyone hates you, cheater. You're going to miss this, you cheater. You cheat in college and on tour and you're a piece of SH1T. Beat the cheater's ass. Sorry, Web, for having to play with the cheat. Who did you piss off? Why don't you introduce your children to their grandparents? And all and on it goes. So this guy's listed off the entire... Um, I think Patrick Reed's probably sat down and was like, this is everything I've heard on the golf course. Right. And the lawyer has uh, said... Not all of that would be Brandon Chamley's fault. Some of it seems to predate um, Chamley talking about him on the tour. No, I would have thought so. And also, you would have thought that it's possibly the fault of the American golfing public uh, as much as anybody They can't else. be held accountable for their actions, though, Owen. So uh, Larry Clayman is the lawyer who uh, is the founder of the conservative group Freedom Watch, uh, which has uh, previously failed in prosecuting defamation suits on behalf of Roy Moore against Sacha Barrett Cohen. Um, and a couple of other things. There's this um, one article who says Clayman founded Judicial Watch, the conservative organisation that filed 18 lawsuits against the Clinton administrator. Clayman left Judicial Watch and then, of course, sued it. He recently sued Facebook for $1 billion for not removing an anti-Israel page and represented a homophobic preacher in a slander lawsuit against Rachel Maddow. And he sued his mom as well. So that's the, uh, the very notable lawyer that uh, Patrick Reed has uh, got into bed with so $750 million well uh, be interesting to see if um, anything comes of that or if it's just actually trying to tie up the PGA's lawyers while they have other stuff going on at the same time so uh, either way it's going to be beneficial to the good people at Live. it's uh, 7.58 this morning OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today golf is really revealing its true colours isn't it the golfers and golf as a sport like you know we we we, well, we knew the truth the whole time, but like now that you're squabbling about money in public, the dirty linen is out and it's like shit stained. Mm. I think Nathan made the point a few weeks ago that if any of these stories came out in any previous year, if it would be the biggest golf story of the year, whereas this is like maybe top 20. It's definitely like a post-Trump situation where pff, the whole thing is in fuego, right? Yeah, like the whole universe of golf is absolutely on fire at the moment and like it's, it's other stories as well this morning that we won't even touch on because Reid has kind of grabbed the headlines and the stories that we won't touch on are also extraordinary golf stories Ahead of our Cabri FC Roadshow tonight we're going to be deciding on the top five most influential Irish players in both the men's and women's game I think it's figures in, in some cases because I think Jack Charlton's uh, in there for sure A reminder tickets for the show on Vicar Street are on sale ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football you can head along I'm sure you can get tickets um on the way tonight, otvsports.com forward slash events for T's and C's and more. Now, our resident South Africa rugby correspondent, Stephen Kisby-Green, a.k.a. SKG, is on the line to piece together just what happened to South Africa this time around against New Zealand. SKG, good morning. What happened? You were supposed to smash the end. It was supposed to be the end of the Ian Foster era, but instead, they've just got... You've made them stronger. It's like the Terminator, except, like, they're T2, and uh, we thought you guys were, like, capable of destroying them, but you weren't. I would have thought you would have been happy about that, Joe. Uh, we, 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 we managed to get uh, Ian Foster to, to stay in his job, and we've also managed to bring uh, Joe Schmidt in, into the in, into the mix, just because that's that, that's how South Africa rolled. We, we we create the All Blacks dream team that you that, that you wanted. Joe Schmidt on the opposite side of the 
coaching line to us and telling everybody about our weaknesses and exploiting our weaknesses is our worst nightmares SKG give us Scott Robertson playing Harlem Globetrotters or whatever but actually having Joe Schmidt there is like a ghost of our previous failures and he's like oh I've learned from my mistakes I've come back and I'm I'm getting past quarter final this stage lads well I mean he hasn't he, he hasn't tasted that glory yet so who knows who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's also he's also. It, what's interesting to me is that he's going. He's coming in as a tack coach, and um, quite famously, uh, under Schmidt, Ireland were not allowed to offload. Like it's quite. It's the quite famous. Like that's that's a stereotype that has been go- gone through his entire tenure. And obviously, the All Blacks, the the way that they beat South Africa, a couple of a couple of. Um, there's a couple of key points, but one of the ways they beat South Africa is they managed to exploit the rush defense with the offload. So now if you've got anti-offload Schmidt well, as the attack coach. Let me just let me just puncture that uh, pretty quickly here because quite famously, what happened was Ireland became a little bit uh, predictable. But Joe Schmidt's starter plays are the best in world rugby and have been all the way back to his time in Claremont. So what we're saying is if they get any first phase ball, the quality of their... Uh, first phase attack is going to be the best in the world the whole thing about the offloads was I'm not sure if he actually trusted our style of play or if he thought that actually the best thing for us to do was to physically wear down the opponent and you can't do that if you're not going into contact and if you're not drawing them into contact so I would say it was on purpose that he didn't get us to offload as opposed to him being allergic or it being a rule that you can't offload it was like that wasn't his game plan his team now are very good at offloading, and so therefore he will use that because he thinks that it's to his benefit. Yeah, I also, I also agree with you there. I think it was more the sake of... Um, I was more, more making a joke there than anything else. I think it was more the sake of the Irish like, players didn't grow up offloading in, in, in high school or in, in developmental rugby, whereas New Zealand are bred into the offloading. They, that, that is what they do from, from, from like the, the time they're knee-high to a grasshopper. So like, it, it, it would make sense that... that he wouldn't be as averse to offloading in in the in the All Black style that he would be to the to the Irish style. So you, you've heard us say that our worst fears here are that he's going to end up beating us in a, in a big game at the World Cup. That's that's very possible. It's on the cards that we'll we'll meet them potentially. What do South Africa do? They care about the fact that Joe Schmidt is going to be part of this coaching ticket. Do they think that this is a significant beef up? What was your instinct as a South African rugby supporter this morning? Um, I was a little bit. Surprised by the decision, to be honest, not not, just, not so much the Schmidt decision, but more the fact that New Zealand have backed Ian Foster as the head coach until 2023. It's the it's the it's the surety that Foster is there until the end of the World Cup. Now, whether or not Schmidt becomes a bit more of a, a, a like takes over more of the pressure more of the role in the general sense behind the scenes is a different story i personally would be a little bit worried if schmidt is the one taking control of the situation more than 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 foster because as you you rightfully pointed out um the way that schmidt coaches it's the starter plays it's those first phase ball first second phase getting the structures together which is the one thing New Zealand have been lacking in the past couple of couple of seasons is that structured play they, they've been fantastic on broken and loose play and they're good at creating that chaos to make it look like they're in complete control which they have been up until this year now Schmidt brings in that extra bit of actual control on the starters play that would worry me as a South African fan because so that, the way South Africa get at a, a an attack is their rush defence, and if if there's one thing Schmidt will have learned from his from his predictable Irish um, uh, 
through. I mean, he, I say predictable Irish. Like, the, the, um, he, he was the best coach in the world when he was coaching Ireland, and he made Ireland the best team in the world a year out from the World Cup. Then he didn't, he, he didn't evolve. I think now with the Blues, he's shown that he's had an ability and, and an affinity to evolve and adapt, and actually he's made that Blues team a lot better than they should be on paper. And I think that he can do the exact same thing with the All Blacks, and the All Blacks on paper should be brilliant anyways. Yeah, I do think as well that there's probably a sequence of events where uh, the team spent so much time in its COVID bubble, then came over to this part of the world that they were at the end of uh, their tether. We beat them, softened them up, France beat them, and then they went away and they didn't play any good quality rugby in the meantime, except against themselves, because the South African teams are no longer there. And then they blitzed us in that first game, like... You know, okay, we we might have been a little bit uh, undercooked because we're just off the plane, etc. And then uh, Ireland played really well, like our two best ever performances in our rugby history, and beat them. Like, there's a load of different reasons why South Africa, why New Zealand weren't at the pitch of the game until the second test against South Africa. And the truth is probably somewhere between the first and second test against South Africa, they are beatable. They could also kill you if things go right for them. No, exactly. I think, but, but that's sort of a microcosm of the way of where the top four teams are, or four or five teams are in the world right now. Is everyone can beat everyone on their day, and it actually makes it a lot more competitive now than it has been for the past couple of couple of seasons. But what what's particularly interesting is the way the um, sort of momentum between the Springboks and, and the All Blacks sort of shifted in the past week. Um, in the first in the, in the first game, South Africa had all the possession, all the territory. Um, I got a lot of stick for for saying that, for, for basically taking a brilliant performance from the Springboks and turning it into a major negative. But I was saying that they just weren't clinical enough. They, they they had all the possession, all the territory. They were dominating. They just didn't dominate on the scoreboard like they should have. Now the opposite of that happened on on Saturday, where the All Blacks kind of turned everything that, that they they learnt from all of the things that they were getting wrong in the first in, in the first test against South Africa, and they fixed it like overnight almost and it that, that and that actually will force Jacques Nienaber into a change of mindset as well and probably change like but basically create a a doubt in his mind that there, there is only one game plan in the Springboks and I mean there, he's shown over the past year that there isn't just one game plan there's a plan A and a plan B and they can switch between the two I think Ninaba needs to make a plan C which is actually an amalgamation of the two two game plans at the same time Okay let, let's talk a little bit then about um, South Africa the team selection they didn't pick the same team for the second test as they picked the first test so what was that about because again it feels again making the point I think to in the office none of this really matters in the long run, no one's going to remember who wins this year's rugby championship when we're this close to a World Cup, unless there's like a massive 60 nil mauling of one team or the other, and then it's kind of history. So you split a two-test series at home against New Zealand, but you've massively expanded the quality of depth that is available to the squad at the moment. I'd say South Africa are relatively happy with that outcome. On the surface, probably, but the problem was that three out of the five changes that they made for the second test were injury forced and they were major- majority in the back line creating a major reshuffle so you've got Jesse you had Jesse Creel starting on the wing and Jesse Creel is, is an outside center and 
Um, I mean, Creel's been fantastic on the wing whenever he's featured there, but he's not he's not a wing by definition. And he, he, anyone can argue that he's the fourth choice South African right wing at best um, at the moment. So starting him against the All Blacks was was a, was a challenge. Then obviously you have Faf de Klerk who was uh, KO'd in the first minutes on the first test, so he couldn't start. So you had Hendricks coming in and then bringing in... Um, a, a brand new, a, a brand new uh, scrum half in Yankees who hasn't played uh, spring, uh, for the Springboks in a while. Um, that sort of uh, it, it was injury enforced, and it wasn't necessarily what potentially what Nienaba wanted to do coming into the series. The Joseph Dweber thing is interesting as well because Bongi and Benambi was named to start the test um, on the Tuesday, and then three hours later, after obviously warming up or training for in the practice after the team announcement, he pulled out with a knee niggle, and he is currently not in the squad to, tra- to travel to Australia. Okay. So that's that. So that so that's um, th- that situation at Hooker is actually a little bit more dire than Nienaba probably wants, and unfortunately Dweber. In Dweber's two Springbok test matches that he's played, he played against Wales in that second test, which South Africa lost by one point, and then he he played against, and and then he started this weekend. He's he's kind of shown that there is a bit of a doubt in a lot of South African fans' minds if he is the the person that that comes in after after Benambian marks, because. I mean, obviously everyone's got to grow into test match rugby, and you can't exactly expect him to fire for straight away. Yeah, but. He's he's a big he's a very physical guy and he didn't he wasn't able to get that physical dominance that you would have expected him to get against the All Blacks and his lineout throws were some of the worst um, we've had in a in a long time. Since. Okay, but just to point out to everybody, that's the third choice hooker is your main concern at the moment as a South African rugby fan. That's not a bad scenario to be in. You've got a World Cup, you've got a Lions successful Test series, you've got like an evil genius as your head coach. I know you just lost the game, but come on, you've got to be happy. No, no, fair. Like it's it it, it is. It, I, I still maintain that we have the two best hookers in the world rugby at the moment in, in Manumbi and Marks. And a, a lot of people say that Marks is the best, and he's always starting off the bench, which is interesting. Um, but it, 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 that, that that's only a positive if we use them correctly. And but if we you don't win in the World Cup, is not the point. Like well, this is all this is all shadow boxing now. So you you don't put everything on tape that you're going to put on tape in the group series or in the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals of the World Cup. But it's but but South Africa could easily lose marks in the first game, with, to a concussion. Okay, fair enough. But you know, we we like that's that's the ball game, and that's why you're spending this time now investing in uh, it's is it Dweeba, Dweeba, uh, yeah, Dweeba. Uh, and so he by the time comes round, instead of us going to our third or fourth choice out half who will have never played, you'll have a guy who's been like beaten by Wales beaten by the All Blacks and who was intent at that stage a year later going actually you know what I know what this is going to be like I've, I've, I've got my bad throws out of the way I think they're managing this perfectly no fair I I mean it's it's more I, I don't think it's as planned as, as you're making it out to seem is it uh, not exactly I, I, though because it, it does feel like they made significant changes they didn't pick the man of the match from the previous test in the second test against New Zealand because if they'd lost the first one I suspect they would have been a very different team every best available player would have started the second week whereas actually what happened was the team that started against Wales they started to bring some of those players through I just feel like they're absolutely clinically looking at this and going we're going to need a squad of 45 players who will narrow down to whatever it is that actually goes to the World Cup in France there'll be some players left behind who we need to be able to break glass in case of emergency and away we go 
I mean, fair. I do think there was a, there was a specific a specific game plan and game style in mind as to why they put um, you know put marks on the bench because obviously you're, you're, if your starting hooker goes down in training, you'd imagine that the bench the, the named bench player would move into the starting lineup and then whoever's in the wider squad would come onto the bench. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. The um, replacement what, the, the bench player was remain, remain on the bench player. So you can there was obviously an idea that Ninaba was trying to ensure that the game plan of bringing marks on as an impact player was would work but it, it I, I i mean fair it's it, it's more testing out theories and testing out combinations at this point and it, as you, you rightfully point out no one's really going to worry about this in, in in 18 months time it's just it, w- i mean the fact that bongi was named as as the starting uh, hooker in the first place doesn't really it, it, it's more like a testing depth out of necessity as opposed to testing depth because that's what he wanted to do against the all blacks he would much rather have had this option to do it against argentina sure. if if, if um, south africa were going to argentina with the hopes of winning the rugby championship power rankings update are new zealand back in the top 4 no where are they? After one, after one excellent performance where they nullified one aspect of the Springbok game, particularly, and that was a breakdown, I don't see that they have fixed all... They've papered over cracks, and I will only be able to legitimately say that they are in the top four after they beat Argentina twice and maybe, and Australia at least once. I, I, I hate to disagree, but the official World Rugby... Uh, world rankings, which are obviously always correct, have them up at number four. They're on 87.76 points. Uh, South Africa on 87.78 points. Oof. So in a couple of rounds, we could have a world where New Zealand are ahead of South Africa in the world rankings and therefore a better team than them, unquestionably. Yes, but it, at, the, at the end of uh, the, 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 world, the, the rugby championship, South Africa could be world number one. So if, if, if ifs and buts and all that sort of thing, then we all have a lovely Christmas. Good stuff, SKG. Thanks a million. Just guys. Uh, right. You can leave your comments on the YouTube stream. You can get us 0879-180-180. That's the WhatsApp number. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs. It's 14 minutes past eight. Uh, we're brought to you each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. After the break, we're live with the fourth episode of You Had to Be There, our first in the world of GA, alongside Tipperary hurling legend Port Mar. That's next. It was so unexpected. You had to be there. Coupling Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to be there. Alright, it is the latest episode of You Had to Be There. It's the slot where we ask people for their favourite individual performances, ones that were so good it reminded you about why you fell in love with sport in the first place. We've done some brilliant ones in the past and we're delighted to say it's our first opportunity to do some GAA. Potty Mara is with us this morning. Potty, how are you getting on? Good lads yourselves. Yeah, good. This is always difficult uh, when you're asked to make a list of five things that you've witnessed personally. You're like, actually, I've seen some good stuff. So how did you narrow it down? What did you go about? How did you pick your best and favourite? Oh God, Jared! I actually found it very hard because when when I was asked to start, I was like, "Geez, yeah, that'd be easy enough. You'd be able to pick out a couple of performances." That, but then as you went through it, then you'd be like, "Gene, what about this one?" You know, it was different years. I picked other ones. I was like, "Oh God!" And then I could have picked five Tipperary ones then, and then I was like, "I better put in a few, one or two from different teams as well." So, um, yeah, it was hard, than I thought it'd be now. Uh, we should start with Lar against Kilkenny in the 2010 final because um, I don't know if there's ever been a better individual performance in an All-Ireland final. Um, what what was the build-up to that like? Did you, did you have a sense he was going to go off that day? Well, Lar had been on the panel, I suppose, about nine. I think he came on in 2001. 
So he'd been fair experienced at that stage and Tip hadn't been going that well up to about 2008 or nine when Liam Sheedy came back in. So, um, yeah, but Lars started to find form in, in 2008 and really, you know, pushed it on in 2009 when I came on the panel then. And uh, I think he was nominated for Hurler of the Year in 2009. So, um, you know, he was really in, in form and confidence and he you could just see he's really enjoying, you know, I suppose having a, a good set up, a good management team around him and he's really reaping the benefits. So, um, yeah, no, he was, he was, we got bet in the first round of the championship that year against Cork. We got hammered and, um, just through the back door and, you know, he got the winning point in the All Ireland quarter final against Galway and he had a good performance against Walford. So there was a performance obviously there. It's not a surprise, but Sheeny, what he'd done that day was, was, was outrageous. Like, before we get to the game itself, who would end up marking Lar in training? Like, as a defence, when you were up against him, what were you guys thinking you needed to do to try and break even? Gosh, he's he's mad. Like he he really messes your head in training, and you know he just used to be very versatile. He used to move, roam around. He could be at ten, he could be at eleven, he could be at fourteen, fifteen. He nearly just try and drive you mad more than nearly concentrating on what he's doing himself. You know that kind of way, but um, very hard to mark because. Um, you know, he's so big. He's actually six foot three. Like he's he's so tall. He's so strong. Even though he might look that, you know, maybe even wider, whichever way you want to put it. But he's so strong, naturally strong. And uh, and then obviously he's so fast as we all seen over the years. So um, no matter what way he could, he could he could come at you anyway. He could run at you. He could catch a high ball over you. He could get out in front of you. He was just so cute. And um, as the years went on, and as I said to you at the start. When he got that, he got more confidence and he started enjoying it a bit more. I think he really shone his performances. There's a kind of sweet spot here. It's funny. He's actually the first and second ones that you've picked. Um, we'll get to them in a minute. When you say he's messing with you in training, is it, is he chatting to you as much as anything? Is it like, I'm going to skin you for speed here? Like, I'm, I'm faster than you? Or is it just purely giving you a challenge that you're like, I don't know where this is coming from next? No, like I suppose I'm I'm the same club as him, so I would have seen a lot with being team club and, and inter county. And you know, we'll just say for instance, if I was training in a training game at at centre back, and he knew I'd like to get on the ball and roam around and get in the ball and pick up the breaks, whatever it is. And uh, he'd nearly concentrate on me and train. Then he'd try and put me off. He'd say to the younger lads around me in the forward line with him, he'd say, "Look, lads, you know what he wants to do. You know, take him to another part of the pitch that he doesn't want to be, and all that kind of thing." So. He was very cute like that, you know, and I suppose he was kind of ahead of his time in his thinking as a forward, as you see now. This was 10 years ago, like, so, you know, he'd bring you out of your comfort zone. So if he'd say, I go in centre forward and, and park there for a while and he'd bring me out the field or he'd bring me into the corner, you know, completely out of where I want to be playing, you know, that kind of way. So um, he just used to kind of mess your head like that, but... In fairness, he'd do it in a way too that it would actually try and make me think, you know, if that position player was going to do it to me in a, in a game, what, what what way I'd face it, you know. So um, that's just the way he was. He, he was a great character. Like hey, Maybe this is wrong, but I definitely get the sense that the forwards would have spent a lot of time working with Damon O'Shea around that time and that he was the one who was helping them to create the space and kind of Lar is almost, uh, you know, if, if Damon O'Shea was to create in a lab the perfect hurler for him, uh, maybe Lara would be the perfect one because he can do anything that you want him to do and he has the skill set and the range of skills that if there's no space he's going to be able to use his speed to create it but actually he still has that size that you need to put somebody who's physically strong on him as well Yeah exactly like Eamon O'Shea came in in, in 08 with Liam Sheedy and 
you were talking there, he really transformed forward play in Tipperary and I think he actually kind of transformed it in, in, in the country as well. And, you know, I think Lara was the forefront of that. You know, he really bought into what Eamon wanted as in movement, you know, final step in different positions, you know, runs off the ball, different things like that. Like, and, you know, I picked 2010 here as the first one with Lara, but even 2009 final against Kenny when they beat us, um, I remember Eamon actually got Lara to play the first half centre forward, which was out of the blue for everyone, kind of. But he knew he could get into space, he could pick up breaks. And I think Lara had about three points in the first half and he was really, really in form. Like, I think it caught Kilkenny by surprise as well. So um, look, that was just the versatility he had and the buy-in he had to what Eamon wanted in the team and especially in the forward line. What else was there from Eamon O'Shea like, uh, with regards to that forward play? Like, Lara was obviously the most important part of it, but I hadn't realised the level of innovation that he brought to, to forwards. Yeah, you know, um, I suppose when you want, I want to, I wouldn't be the best person to speak about that because he would, have, he would have talked to the forwards a lot individually and as a group, as a forward. Like, but even though, even over the years, they're like, he was just, it was all about movement with Eamon and, you know, finding yourself into good positions. And, you know, there was no such thing as, you had to be in a certain position at some at a different time the way it used to be 15, 20 years ago. He really wanted movement, like, and you could even see that from the first goal Larry got in the 2010 final. I think he was he was one on one inside, and there was no one inside from about 40 yards. You know, just the way the lads found themselves in positions. You know, so um, he just really kind of wanted the players to express themselves and be open minded and play that bit of freedom in the far line that. I suppose play what you see in front of you. You don't have to be nailed in the corner forward or wing forward or centre forward, you know, that kind of way. So, and he had different ideas then as well. Like, as I said, you there, he put Larry centre forward the first half in the semi, in the final in 2009. I remember he played Noel McGrath centre forward in 2010 against Brick Walsh because they knew Brick was going to sit and he just knew the way Noel could play the game that he'd Noel nearly playing out midfield and we were just picking off Noel passes and I think Noel scored about six points so he just had these ideas and that's had a lot of this movement and freedom in the forward line that helped them really express themselves especially the kind of forwards we had at the time well, It must have been very difficult to defend against uh, week in week out in training generally you're like oh Jesus where is this coming from now? Yeah exactly like I've often been asked that question like you know you could be faced you could be full forward, you could be full back uh, one week, you mark an own Kelly, you might mark on Lara Corbett the following week, you could be out centre back, you mark an own McGrath, or you could mark, you know, John O'Brien, it was just endless, like, and, you know, as we as the years went on, you'd Jamie Callan, obviously, you'd, you'd bubble, so, you know, no matter what day of training, you were getting a different challenge, and I probably, I always said that, they probably actually stood towards his backs because we weren't going to face much better outside of our own training ground. The 2010 All-Ireland Final then, obviously, um, it's a, a, a history match where, like, literally the the greatness of the Kilkenny team being as good as the uh, Kerry footballers, they can be the greatest team of all time in GA up to that point. Uh, did that factor into any of your thinking? Were you aware of that in the build-up? Because, like, it was the most hyped hurling match that I can remember. Yeah, you know, I suppose there was, there was a lot of talk at the time. Um, and then you're trying that we played each other in the 2009 final as well. And Kilkenny going five in a row. And then with the injuries they had leading into the game with Henry Sheff and, and John Tennyson, the walking with the cruciates. So there was a fair big build-up. And but in fairness, was there any more on the Kilkenny side? It was fairly quite our side of things in Tipperary. Like, as I said, our training sessions leading into that final 
like they were very quiet there wasn't many at them we had the official open night like every team would do before Ireland but other than that was and it wasn't as if we had closed doors or anything it was just we had a couple of people trickling in but there was nothing you wouldn't take any notice of it like you know so you can about your business so um but yeah, I suppose the whole occasion, the build-up to it, as you spoke about there, they're going for five in a row. Um, and then that's why I kind of trained Larry's performance as number one as well here because, you know, to have that performance in a final that was so built up and there was so much on the line and then from to do that and make history, like, so, um, yeah, that was probably one of the reasons why, why it was such a good performance. What's your own memory of the game and how it kind of ebbs and flows? Because uh, although Shefflin goes off, it didn't really feel like it was going to be a significant impact on whether or not. Uh, it kind of that doesn't make any sense either because he's obviously Henry Shefflin. But um, it, you know, you still felt like this was nip and tuck, really, until until Lark Corbett scores the goals. Yeah, you know, and like Henry Shefflin went off after I don't know how many times there, you know, to half for the first time for enough anyway, and um, but like. Kilkenny were going for five all Ireland's in a row. Like they had such a good like I've said it before that you take Henry Sheffern out, you have Owen Larkin, you have you have um Owen Larkin, Richie Power, Richie Hogan, TJ Reid, Eddie Brennan, Aidan Fogarty, and that's only having them few there. You could have Michael Fenley pitting forwards for a bit as well. Um, you know, you Colin Fenley, you had so many players there that they had to pick from, like, you know, so no matter what. As it was kind of like what we spoke about there with tip training sessions with the forwards. We were marking that no matter who came on you in, in playing Kilkenny, you were getting a different challenge and you knew what you were expecting. They were all working very hard. They all fought for the team and they're all brilliant to hurl. So, um, yeah, I know Henry Sheffield went off early enough and that, but even I don't, I don't even think Kilkenny lads use that as an excuse throughout the years. I think they said that tip were very better the team, but yeah, no matter what Kilkenny forward you're marking, they bring a different challenge like and, yeah, it was nip and talk until Larry got, kind of got that goal. It was nip and talk until the second half, really, until he, until he got the second goal, I think it was. So, um, yeah, no, it was um, an, an outstanding performance, to be fair, and really stood out. A hat-trick in the all Ireland final, obviously, it's like, yeah, that can't really be bettered. And then in the Munster final in 2011, which is next on your list, there's another Lark Corbett masterclass, uh, Tipperary 7-19, Waterford 19 points. This is Davy Fitz's Waterford team, I think, is it? Yeah, David Fitz was manager. Um, they had won the Munster final in 2010. Um, you know, I think it was Davies last year as well for manager, actually. And just played below in the old park of Kiev. And um, I think we, we we changed our management. Declan Ryan had come in, Liam Sheedy left after the 2010 final. So um, we knew management. But um, yeah, we got back to the Munster final in Cork. And um, it would only been a lot of our second Munster final playing. So it was still a big, a massive occasion for us. And yeah, look, I think Warford played an inexperienced full-back that day where they started him in there. Um, Jerome Mayer, I think his name was. And, of course, as Larry done, Larry, he, he sniffed. He knew what was in experience in there and he made his win there. And, yeah, 4-4 kind of explains itself, really, in the Munster final. Um, it was just, you know, we won we won handily enough in the end. But you could just it was just one of them games. And it was like a lot of my, you know, my top five performances I picked for you there. The reason I picked them was because you, you, were, you were leaving the game and you were going, wow, I just thought that was unbelievable. Like, even if I was playing or watching, you know, that kind of way. So that day in 2011 was one of the days where you, even though I was playing, I kind of left going, Jesus, what is Larry after doing there? 4-4. Four, four, like. Yeah, 4-4. Four, four, it's like kind of an under-10s game, but it's a Munster final against the reigning Munster champions. Like, what, what, yeah. what, what, have you seen 
in, in modern hurling, somebody on as rich a vein of form as Lara Corbett in late 2010, early 2011? Well, it was probably different performance, if that makes Like, obviously, Tony Kelly. Like, I, I could have picked Tony Kelly and these as well, but I probably wouldn't have seen him live. Do you know that kind of way? Um, you know, to be on television or whatever. But, like, Tony Kelly has given some outrageous performances in the last few years, and he's been racking up. 14, 15, 16 pints. Now, I know he was hitting freeze as well and he's been getting 8, 9, 10 pints from play. Um, but, like, as regards goals and goal scoring form and being so consistent, you know, it takes a lot to top what Larry has done and Jamie Cannon has given a couple of performances over the years where he's got a few goals. Um, you know, Groat Hegarty, you know, Jamie Flanagan, a few Limerick lads have got high, came out games with a lot of pints scored, we'll say, but... Yeah, as regards goal scoring, I don't think anyone has been in such a richer game of form as Larry was in 2009, 10, 11. I know it was very difficult to include somebody from Kilkenny on your list, but you had to. We've got Henry Sheffern in. He's next against Galway in the 2012 final. This is a drawing game. Kilkenny 19 points, Galway 213 from September 2012. This is the All-Ireland final, the first game. What about Sheffern's performance that day was special? Yeah, um, I was at that game myself. My brother was playing. Rowan was playing the minor All-Ireland beforehand, so... Um, yeah, Galway were in control that day. From what I remember, they were up four or five at half time, and you couldn't like Kilkenny weren't firing at all. And like to me, this performance—the reason I picked this performance was that day. I think Henry Sheff finished up at hurler deer that year, um, and he was coming to the back end of his career. Like to be fair, um, but that day the performance in the second half from him—they moved him out centre forward. I think. And he really just grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck. When Kenny weren't firing, they brought on a couple of lads trying to get the thing going. It wasn't going their way. If, you know, Joe Cannon got the goal in the first half. But he really just picked him up. It was like he just picked the team up by the scruff of the neck and said, right, lads, come on. I'll bring you to the, either win this game or bring us to a replay, whatever it was. And he was just unreal. He just came out centre forward, one puck outs, one hard ball, worked his ass off, you know, I think he only got, I have marked down here, I think he only got a pint from play. He scored 12 points overall in that game, but it was just his sheer leadership in that second half that I actually left that game thinking that was that was one of the first times I really seen a player show that leadership really stood out on the pitch on his own and just picked the team up by the scruff of the neck and as, he, as, as, as the game finished up, dragged them to a replay and they won the replay. Um, you know, but that really just to me, emphasise, I suppose, Henry Sheffield's leadership, you know, I suppose his influence in a game and his influence in a team and a squad. So that's the reason I picked that one. That was the reason I left Crow Park that day thinking that was unbelievable second half performance for Henry Sheffield. And, you know, coming to, he's been there since 99, it's 2012, and to produce that performance at that stage of his career, I just thought it was outstanding. And when you you talked about the quality of team he was in earlier, but for them to underperform almost collectively while he was capable of doing that and making sure that they didn't go out of the championship that day, I think like I think anybody who was there will remember that forever because that's kind of a signature performance from Henry. There were other great performances from Henry where he would score two eight and he'd destroy a team and like that he'd pick on the weakest link of the opposition. But that day it was like everything was failing against an opposition who I think had already beaten them in the championship that year and who were on the verge maybe of becoming a great team and they just oh, no, 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 it's not going to happen and it set Galway back years I think losing that one um, did they yeah. did they go on and have is that when the 
management team ends up splitting from the players afterwards. So, like, you know, it sets in motion this kind of... It's one person saying, not today, and it's also the greatest hurler of all time doing that. You're like, well, that's pretty impressive. So, fair enough. I think that's definitely worthy of a place on the list. Yeah, you know, I said there, it was just, it was just one of the moments I left Crow Park and I was going, geez, that was a... That was an unbelievable performance to bring your team back from the dead, like, you know, nearly single-handedly, you know. And, um, yeah, that's why it stood out in my mind. Um, as I said, I don't, I don't even think he got man of the match that day. I think I think one of the Galway, was it Irla Tanyan or someone got man of the match for Galway in the middle of the field that day. Like So, like, it just goes to show it. But, like, for me as a player at the time and looking back even now, when I was thinking back the other day about my what performance I pick, he just for some reason that just keeps standing out in my mind, and I think he te- his teammates and Kenny people would, would would understand why I'm picking that performance. Seamus Callanan in 2015 against Galway, uh, poor Galway, second time in a row we've picked on them today. But this is the semi final against Galway in 2015. They won this What about Callanan? Is this the three nine defeat? Is that the, that day? Is it? Yeah, it was. Uh, he scored three nine. 3-4 from play. That's not bad. <laughs> no, that was... That was just... Yeah, even I was playing myself centre-back and I was just... Even you could... When it was happening in front of your eyes, you were just like, is he? Is that actually him again? You know, that kind of way. Is he after getting another score, another score, another score? He was just on, fi- on fire. Um, like, that, we were speaking about Larry there earlier on about, you know, when Ian Mache came in, that Larry really... His career, his performance really changed him for years. Like... Likewise, the Jamie Cannon there, especially from 2014 on, you know, he re- and when Eamon was manager 2014-15, that he really, his game just changed. It went up a couple of notches, like, you know, and this game kind of really, really was the, was the explosion of that for all the world. Um, yeah, we probably didn't hurl as best as we could have that day. Um, but the game was a cracking game, really close. It was the start of a trilogy semi-finals three years in a row where, we were separated between Tip and Galway by a pint either way. Day one and 15 by a pint. We won 16 by a pint. And day one and 17 by a pint. But that performance, you know, in 2015, you know, personally for Shamey, was just unbelievable. Like, you know, even we lost by a pint, you leave and you go, Genie, Jesus, like, what is after? That was unbelievable. Like, you know, three, four from play, five frees. I think Parik Mannion started on a full back. They had to move him out. They put Dahi Burke in on full back. You know, and they're not, I know they, they were unbelievable players and are still unbelievable players for Galway. And he was just making ribbons of everyone that came near him, like, you know, so it was just unbelievable. 3 4 from playing Iron semi final to be on the losing side, like, you know, it was just, the, I remember seeing him after the match that day and we were all devastated, but he was just heartbroken because you'd think that gets you over the line on any given day, but unfortunately, it didn't. He's a very different type of hurler to Lar Corbett, but I guess. Physically, I presume anyway, they're, they're they're fairly similar. So, which of the two was harder to mark in training, Corbett or Callanan? Yeah, the, geez, that was I say hard. They're kind of two different players to mark. Larry's kind of a more a roamer, a freestyle. Where I suppose Shane really nailed down his spot as full forward from 2014 on, and never really moved too far from there. Um, you know, both probably the same height. Um, both probably the same strength and I'd love to watch the race between the two of them see who'd win it because over 100 metres because two of them are like lightning um, you know but yeah very hard to mark I suppose Larry's probably a bit better in the air 
than Shamey was, but Shamey improved as years went on. I actually think that day in the 3-4 three, three, from play, I think he actually caught two balls out of the sky to score him. So that's after defeating my reason there, who was better there. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, in general, no, Larry probably had the edge in the air. But yeah, Shamey was just, you know, I often marked him over the years in training. I was full back, he was full forward. He's so quick off the mark. Five, six yards, burst left or right, like he's gone. And he used to like to play a lot from behind. He'd like to come in behind you and make a run behind you. You know, play the, play the defender from behind. So it's very hard to see what way he was going to go. Um, whereas Larry might make a move out in front of you. So, but yeah, um, you know, very difficult to mark. I would have marked him a few years over in club games as well. But, um, but geez, yeah, that day he was just unstoppable. Like, And there was, a, there was another performance in 2016, the finals, Kilkenny. He scored 13 points and nine from play. I could have very easily put that in, but I said, if I will, they'll all be given out that pick just tip ones. <laughs> uh, that fi- that semi final, right? Uh, as you say, it's the, the trilogy of years. Galway didn't really do themselves justice in the final against Kilkenny. The following year, as you point out, you actually annihilate Kilkenny in the, in the final, and that's Michael Ryan's first year. So this is Eamon O'Shea's last game as manager. I was always really disappointed that we didn't get to see that final that year because it felt like yourselves and Kilkenny were the best teams in the country you can't say that after you lose a semi-final I suppose it's not fair but of all the defeats that stick out does that one still rankle the most? Yeah it's a bit, it's a bit of an itch alright um, we'll say I think Tip had this succession plan in place that it was going to be Eamon's last year anyway and Mick Ryan was going to take over it was one of the first times he's done it but like Aim was such a big part of all our careers, that group, you know, he, he, he got us going in 2009. Um, you know, he came back in 2013 to take over as manager for them few years. And like, you do anything for the man, you know, you literally die with your boots on for the man. And that was one of our biggest hopes, I suppose, is to try and win on Ireland for him. And especially being his last year and against Galway, he's living up in Galway, he's working in Galway. We knew what it meant to him to win. Um, that game so yeah it was devastating in that point of view and I suppose I said to you to start just felt we didn't play as as as, as good as we could have that day I felt Galway gave it everything and that got them over the line I just felt that we were we left a few things a few probably notches of a performance behind us and only for Shamey's outstanding individual performance you know we could have been further away but um, yeah very disappointing as I said we drew Kenny the year before in the Ireland beating in the replay so it would be nice to get back to 2015 to play him again but just unfortunately weren't good enough at the time and the day Last one here is Gerard Haggerty against Kilkenny in uh, this year's All-Ireland Final um, it's definitely one of the all-time great All-Ireland Final performances Yeah definitely you know I was over the game um, you know just like it's very easy to look back now when the final whistle is gone, that but even we were talking about at the game afterwards that the way it finished up and the way Kilkenny fought back and you know as Kilkenny do they never give up they're always hanging in there didn't play that well but like if you take Road Hedley's performance out of that game we don't know what way it would have went in the finish um, you know so he really dictated that day you know throughout the game you know he scored one five but he was winning puck outs. You know, he was getting on breaking ball. He was, there was no one, like they moved Paddy Deegan onto him. They switched more lads onto him. They just wanted him to get a grip of him. And he was just, it was just one of them days that I know myself as a player and he'd probably say the same thing, Grode. He was just playing. It was just freedom. He was just, the ball was following him around the field. It was just one of them days that everything was working out for you. And 
So it's one of the best performances I've ever seen live anyway, without a doubt. It's just, you know, if, if as I said to you, if you take his performance out that day to day, Kilkenny could have got snuck a victory, like, you know, but he just kept Limerick going, he kept Limerick going. Even when Kilkenny started coming back into the second half, he got on outrageous scores from off out the field. He was winning frees, he was winning puck outs. You know, he was getting the freeze that he was getting through and he was getting advantage and just taking the freeze. So to me, it was just, we were saying at the time, we were laughing, we were saying, geez, why don't you just put someone on him and man mark him and skip to follow him everywhere to go? But they tried it and it just didn't work. Like, and in fairness, they brought on the big tall um, fella, David Blanchfield, wing back. I think he got a point and he caught a ball over to Road Hegarty as well in the second half near the end. But Road answered back, I think, with a long range point or something to get him over the line. Or, like, you know, that was just, it was just outrageous performance and it was one of the best I've ever seen live in, in the flesh, anyway. No, it was absolute genius for sure. Uh, one last thing, you're, you're um, involved with Liam Callum, so it must be pretty exciting because you know intimately how good the group of players are at the moment. And also, we're just talking about Road Hegarty there, so you know what the challenge is like. How are you enjoying that? Yeah, sure, obviously, geez, it's very easy days yet. Like, tis, they're all, everyone's banging. Smack bang in the middle of the club championship, so um, yeah, it's just quite enough in our part at the moment. But I'm just delighted to be asked to, to be involved again. Um, I suppose you know I'm only, I'm only gone over you could say a season, so not everybody gets the opportunity to come back in as soon. And you know, I really missed it being involved with 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 a, with a group and missed it. I suppose being involved in a high performance setup and that competitive you know setup. So. Um, yeah, I'm thrilled to be back and privileged and honoured to be asked by Liam and hopefully I can I can offer something back to the group and the management team and um, yeah, see can we get the get the show back and roll again next year. And do you know what your role will be yet? Has that kind of have you got into the nitty gritty of that? I suppose it's difficult when there's no training sessions or even conversations to be had with lads. Yeah, I'm just part of the management team selector and helping out whatever way I can, helping out the coach, helping helping out the coaches, Mikey Beavins and that. So um, yeah, looking forward to now. It's going to be a great challenge. Obviously, it's different for me, but already you're thinking of, of different things. So, um, yeah, it's a great challenge. I want to look forward to and, uh, yeah, get the club championship out of the way then and get the, get the ball rolling. Well, listen, we wish you the very best of luck with it, Polly. Thanks, Millie, for joining us. Cheers. Cheers, lads. Thanks. It's tip legend Polly Mara giving us his uh, five selections for you had to be there and we'll obviously do that again next week it's 8.43 this morning here on OTBAM alright if you want to get in touch we'd love to hear from you 0879 is the WhatsApp number off the ball has gone back to Vicar Street in association with Cadbury FC we have a massive roadshow coming your way tonight Michael Owen Ian Wright Emma Byrne and Karen Carney are our guests it's off air so you got to go and see there see it there you have to be there <laughs> otbsports.com forward slash events is uh, where you can get tickets and ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football. We will see you tonight. John, good morning. Jaron Owen, how are you doing? Very good. What's happening? Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, I was looking for this on Instagram. He, he responded to some account and uh, talks about they know the truth when the interview in a couple of weeks. The media is telling lies. This is about him. I've got a notebook and in the last few months of the 100 news I made, only five are right. Imagine how it is. So Cristiano Ronaldo unhappy with the coverage about him at Manchester United. A lot of the back pages this morning saying that the club is happy to cut its losses and let him go. Uh, Gary Neville um, has tweeted out in the last few moments, uh, why does the greatest player of all time, in my opinion, have to wait two weeks to tell Man United fans the truth? Stand up now and speak. The club is in crisis. It needs leaders to lead. He's the only one who can grab the situation 
by the scruff of the neck. As Man United today were linked with Casemiro, the Real Madrid midfielder, with the Adrian Rabiot deal apparently hitting the rocks. The Rabiot deal is really interesting. The, the, if you were to look at the epidemiology of a failed transfer where they're interested in a player who is available at a certain price, they must have an idea very quickly about what the cost will be in terms of wages. Yes. But it leaks. It gets made public, potentially on the Rabio side or on the Juventus side. Fair enough, right? So you, you can't control that. But what you can control is what you know in advance. And it's a week and a half. Is, is, it, a, is it 10 days? Was it a Monday that the Rabio thing yeah, first came a, out? it was a Monday. And, yeah, it was a Monday. Cause so, so yesterday, in fairness, it's a, it's a full week of... Yeah. Rabio in the news cycle. John Murta meeting him, the mother, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what all the, you know, remember when Jota signed for Liverpool? It was just done. What? Where did that come from? Yeah, signed. Yeah, and that's the way business should be done. It should be done. I think Luis Diaz was it. fairly similar. I yeah, Nunez was a little bit of like Nunez is available. There's a couple of clubs who are interested, but then they just went and did it. Yes, like. Like even City signed, was it Gomez yesterday? Like all these things are just happening quickly, and it's like, well, it's just business as usual. And you would have thought even back in the Ferguson days, United would have just signed players like that, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I think Ronaldo in, in, in five years, in 10 years' time, if he looks back, I think he might regret the way this is finishing because he hasn't looked like a guy who's a charismatic, encouraging leader. He looks like a guy who's very much upset about the fact that the talent is leaving the body. And there's a mopiness, there's a moping, and there's a sulking uh, vibe to his kind of demeanour uh, that I've seen, so... I wonder who's doing the interview and is it a situation where he's waiting two weeks to do it because he won't be a Manchester United player when he does the interview and who, throws the whole yeah why is he waiting like, I think Neville's actually right there why, why is he waiting two weeks to do who so who is going to take him like really that's the that's the conundrum isn't it so like what's why can't he just do it now what's, yeah, what, what's I, the, the game behind yeah, waiting two weeks yeah. the deadline is in two weeks obviously so that's why I'm thinking maybe he will be at a different club yeah there's only one man who really knows Jorge Mendes so um yeah, like it was interesting to see as well, lads, uh, Irish lads getting first-team football and well involved last night at the championship. Michael Obafemi and Ryan Manning both scoring for Swansea in their two-all draw with Millwall. Uh, Josh Cullen playing for Burnley against Hull, one-all draw. Andrew Omobamidele uh, in the marriage team that beat Huddersfield 2-1. Troy Parrish, Robbie Brady, Alan Brown all playing for Preston as they uh, drew 0-0 with uh, Rotherham United and they had Chido Zegbene in attack. Mark Sykes sent off for Bristol City against Luton. Bristol City still won the game 2-0, but that's good to, that's promising stuff for Stephen Kenny. And maybe 30 years on, maybe the championship is the old Premier League in terms of the quality and maybe like having players playing regularly in the championship will be good enough for international football going forward, you know? Um, so the, the news on Adam Edes is getting better. He's returned to training, but is not yet ready for... So he was expected to train um, this yesterday was the first time he was expected to train. I haven't heard an update yet on that. But um, I like once he's back training, give him a couple of weeks and then you hope he gets in the team. And then all of a sudden, almost all of our players are fit and playing at the moment. Yeah. And what we want to see from Adam is a few more goals because um, he's obviously very good at holding the ball up and uh, got a good physical presence. And it's just a case of scoring goals. I'm excited about Troy Parrish. I think Troy Parrish has clicked to a degree. And I'm excited what he will do this season with Preston. Uh, I do think that I've, I've, I've got a better feeling about Troy Parrish than I would have had, I'd say, about a year ago. Yeah, and you, you can see that um, the pitfalls of young players making it early. Delhi Ali? Well, anyone? Aaron Connolly? Yeah. You know? Uh, Delhi Ali's in the news today because. Um, Chick Das. 
I mean, it, it was inevitable that he wasn't going to play anymore for Everton because of the weird transfer they did where every time that he racks up a certain amount of games, they have to give loads and loads of money to Spurs. It's like, what? We're not doing that. Why Why do we agree to this deal? It's a sad, it's a sad one for Deli Ali. Uh, you know, back in the Pochettino days, he was almost unplayable at times uh, in that kind of pocket role and then went to the World Cup with England and all, all that kind of thing. And it just, it's a sad... Uh, it's a sad demise, but that, that is football. It can happen sometimes. Um, obviously, the, the big story this morning, folks, is Israel Alatunde, uh, the New Ireland, the fastest man in history uh, in the Blue Ribbon event of athletics, the 100 metres, 10.17 seconds. Crying on the shoulder, David Gillick is a beautiful thing on Twitter. And 20 years of age, Nigerian parents uh, moved here in the late 90s uh, for a new life. And um, he was born in Drahada, grew up in Dundalk and UCD student and... Rashida Adeleke as well this evening. It's just it's just a great story all over the papers. And his reaction was quite, you know, it's quite heartwarming really to see it. Yeah. We were even speaking on News Talk Breakfast about, you know, those moments in our lives when we felt really, really proud to be Irish. And that was one of them last night, definitely. I don't know about you guys, what you think in the past. Obviously, Stuttgart and, and Genoa were, were huge moments. Um, but, you know, that, that, that was another one last night. Um, how much better he can be well though he finished the race really well um, I don't know much about him in terms of 200 but he doesn't run the 200 yeah which um, uh, it, it's funny because yes. after the semi-final it was like um, well he finished really strong what, what if there was another 100 to go but apparently he's just a, a specialist 100 at the moment at the moment yeah we'll, like, we'll see how, how that develops I mean he's Still you so young, and like he, like he obviously has raw materials to be able to think become so, a national you? champion at two hundred at the very least. Yeah, yeah, um, and and also it opens up more opportunities at diamond leagues and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, more exposure, and like as you say, John, it's it's the event that he's in. Uh, the the possible ceiling for this guy's star now is unlike many of the other Irish superstars that have come through in athletics over the last few years. That's just the reality of the situation. This is the race. This is the race that it's, it's so rare for, for an Irish person to be involved in and it's, it's unbelievably exciting. What do we think of the kit? I, I, I like it. Why? What's, the, what's going on with the it's kit? not very green, I thought. Oh, yes, you did say this yesterday. It's a darker green than usual. You yeah. Well, I noticed the day before and I was like, where's the, Irish, where's the Irish competitor? And they're like, oh, it's the one wearing the South African jersey. It's like... That looks, it looks like a cross, doesn't it, on the... Uh, I think it is, yeah. Yeah, it is cross. But that's, that's his, not oh, on okay. the jersey. <laughs> it, looks, it looks like it's actually on the jersey. Um, yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I suppose I didn't kind of twig that, uh, which is interesting. So, right. yeah. Thomas Barr um, is also involved in, in action today. And as I said, Rashida Adeleke in the final of the 400 metres this evening. Kieran McGee on Friday. Yeah, probably hard for Rashida to medal this evening, but she's had a long season and a very good season. Um, Joel Schmidt, as we know, been uh, escalated up the, the ladder in New Zealand, now the attacks coach uh, with um, Ian Foster keeping his job. And uh, it was interesting to see. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall at that PGA Tour meeting yesterday with Tiger Woods. It was on, Tiger Woods has entered the chat, uh, getting off that private jet. And Alan Shipnook is really funny on Twitter, like they were tracking the jet. Leaving. So what happened, sorry? So Tiger Woods, uh, there's a BMW championship in uh, Delaware this week. It's a part of the FedEx playoffs. So Apparently, Tiger Woods hosted a kind of a powwow at a dare manner with all the top players in the PGA Tour that are not defecting to live. And it was another one of those yesterday. So Tiger Woods and Ricky Fowler got off the private jet and straight into a Nissan and then drove off to the, uh, the meeting. So, John, sorry, sorry to interrupt. That's really interesting. The powwow at Adair, has that been confirmed? Has that been like... Alan Chipnooks reported that. Because at Adair Manor, at the Pro-Am, 
uh, I remember Gavin Cooney asked Shane Lowry that there was a players meeting the night before day two of the program and he flat out denied that that happened he said that he wasn't there and that there, there was no players meeting um, it'd be interesting to, to then kind of like find out how well they obviously tried to keep this very much in house then well according to Alan Shipnook who you'd have to trust his reporting over the last year uh, it's only the top 20 players okay. are at this meeting yesterday with Woods it's not the whole PJ Tour like, this is a separate thing but it's it's the Rory's the Jordan Spieths the, the, these types of players Scotty Scheffler Will Zalatoris that obviously there's Tigers come in the big cat arrives into the building and said look folks uh, we want to I'm going to make you all very rich continuously I'm going to continue to make you all richer is, is what he's saying well, I will continue to lend my name and my brand to your stuff don't leave the PJ Tour otherwise I'll get very annoyed and you'll have my disapproval right John, good stuff. Right, Thanks for that. More from John, of course, on Saturday afternoon and off the ball on News Talk. It's 8.54. OTBA, I'm brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Would Elon Musk be worse than the countries buying up football teams? Imagine the infrastructure he'd build stadium-wise. If he bought them for $5 billion, they'd probably be worth 6 the very next day, says Shifty Lad. Uh, Man United aren't going to be sold for $5 billion. They're, they're like an $8.5 billion is the price, I suspect. You can't get them for The Denver Broncos are 5.6 or more. Man United, much bigger than the Denver Broncos. Um, unofficial Kildare fan page says Nace winning at the weekend means they're over a thousand days unbeaten in all competitions in Ireland some underage clubs play in Kilkenny is there room for a county like Kildare to challenge in the future I mean yes like Nace is an absolute behemoth it is time they they are becoming a super club and um, you know like it's it's hard to know will it become like an, an All-Ireland level team like when where they can actually win the All-Ireland I know they came close last year or is it going to be like kind of like a Port Leach situation where it's kind of like a, a localised dominance like a size of, a club that, a similar size to Kilmico Croaks by all accounts nice it's um, the potential is there to do unbelievable things and maybe that'll bring uh, your beloved Lily Whites to the next level in both codes as well well you'd hope so you'd hope that um, it can certainly be influential in that uh, it's 8.55 ahead of our Carby FC Roadshow tonight we're deciding on the top five most influential figures in Irish football in both the men's and women's game a reminder tickets for the show in Vicar Street are on sale now ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football check out otbsports.com forward slash events for T's and C's and more after the break Dr. Colm Kearns of DCU is in studio talking about the Tackling Online Hate in Football Project. First, the lads on the newsround last night talking about the dark arts of football that took place during Liverpool's one-all draw with Crystal Palace. Take a look. I think a lot of the conversation around Nunez and how he's responded to it and the whole welcome to the Premier League and this is a different you know, type of defender that he's going to have to come up, with now, or come up against now is nonsense. Like We're talking about somebody who grew up in Uruguay for God's sake, where like the dark arts were invented in a cauldron in Montevideo. Uh, like it, he's, he's absolutely fine with dealing with the fact, like he's played in Portugal for the last couple of years. I'm sure uh, in what you call the Premier League over there, they're absolutely fine at kicking lumps out of him too. It's just a case of, I guess he's probably trying to adjust to a new league, regardless of where it happens to be, uh, with a bit of, a, a bit of ex- more expectation around him than possibly there would have been before. I, he'll probably be okay, judging by the amount of um, judging by the goals he scored so far, both preseason and in that game against Fulham. But it was really interesting. Like anybody who has, like the Premier League hasn't taken it down pretty much everywhere by this stage. I'd recommend checking out that full compilation of Anderson and Nunez because it's pure entertainment and it's it's just brilliant defensive work from Anderson to niggle at somebody, to niggle at somebody to the point where they try and stick the head in you not once but twice. Nunez tried to go back with his head originally and then there was another push he turned around and he went in face to face but yeah Anderson Jesus and, and Palace in general 
making a really fine start to the season. Probably didn't deserve to lose to Arsenal in the opening day. Uh, they've a really good squad. There's so many players in there that I really like. Eberechi Ezi is, is probably one of them. Lise as well, coming off the bench yesterday. is a fantastic player. Uh, needs probably a couple more years to reach his, his peak. But Palace should, again, be a, a pretty entertaining watch this year. Nunez and Liverpool, they seem to have a bit of a hex on them. Dave McIntyre, this time last night, suggested that maybe this might be the season where Liverpool... Just because they've been at, like because they've been up there for so long, maybe fall away this season. That's probably a case to be made from the first two games, and that could well be true. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Ron. It could be a bit like Borussia Dortmund in the late stages of Jurgen Klopp, where the players have been pressing, running incredibly hard, and that fatigue has to catch up with you. And in Liverpool's case, like last season, having a quadruple run that went down to the final day with all four of the competitions, you know, previously having to fight. Man City in 90 plus point seasons after a while all that pressing all that running has to catch up with the team yeah and I know it'll be a gripe of many Liverpool fans that their additions haven't been overly plentiful and I think Harvey Harvey Elliott has been repurposed as a new signing about four times at this stage new squad number new contract and the poor lad is he seems to have replaced about three different players now but I think they could definitely be doing with, with midfield additions there you saw the keenness with which Thiago was rushed back for that Champions League final shows uh, the reliance in Klopp's mind or the notion that he is a fundamental player in the team and any sense that those midfield cogs were interchangeable, I think he has become increasingly important and the the flip side of that is can you rely on him to stay fit for any period of games um, the latter part of his career and in fact large swathes of his career would suggest not. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did a little bit of business even against um, their better judgment now because this title race, if we can call it that after two games, could get away from them. And not just them, Like there shouldn't be a reliance on Liverpool to make this interesting. There's other clubs there who've spent lots of money, but I think them they don't want to be looking at a situation at the start of September where they're out of sight with Man City already. More news around goodness coming your way at 7 o'clock on Off the Ball on News Talk this evening for you. Now, I'm delighted to say Dr. Colin Kearns is with us in studio. He's involved with the Tackling Online Hate in Football project. Um, Colin, good morning to you. We, we've talked a little bit about this before, so uh, I guess by way of introduction to the audience, what is the Tackling Online Hate in Football project? Well, it's a project funded by the Irish Research Council and the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council that combines cutting-edge quantitative data analysis of uh, abuse of, of footballers online with uh, nuanced qualitative interviews with all of the, the relevant stakeholders in this issue. So we're talking players, club officials, grassroots anti-hate organisations, tech professionals, policymakers, and so on and so forth. And the idea is to come up, up with a appropriately multifaceted and nuanced solution to what's a really complex problem. Because this is something that's, I mean, you, you've covered a lot on this show and, and a lot of other elements of the media have and it's really exploded into mainstream consciousness I think in a big way since Euro 2020 and the aftermath of the final with the, the three lads missing the penalties for England but the worry is in you know in the kind of rush to find a solution to it there may be some kind of knee jerk or, or short term solutions from uh, politicians looking for an open goal or from tech companies just looking to kind of polish their records so what we want to do is just go at this with a, a certain amount of uh, perspective and nuance so what we're coming out with is more hopefully more long term and more multifaceted in how it addresses the problem So um, can you talk to us about what you're analysing? Is it specific tournaments? Is it like what 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 are the um, instances of online hate that you so far have been uh, combing through? 
Well, I mean, our, our ultimate idea is what we'll come up with will be kind of applicable across the board with online hate. But obviously, you know, practicality demands you, you limit your scope a bit. So our tech guys are looking at their case study is looking at all of the euros from both men's and women's UEFA European Championships from 2008, the men's one in Austria, Switzerland, through to the women's one that just finished last month in England, with the idea that we're, we're looking to, uh, specifically at the Twitter data around those and kind of trace the evolution of online hate, how it grows, you know, what the different flashpoints are, whether there's any big commonalities or changes over time. Because again, it's an issue that's really popped into the mainstream in a big way, but it's, it's been going on for, for quite a while, really. So it, it'll be, I think, quite revealing to see how it's changed over that time and indeed how it, you know, how it hasn't changed. And when do you think will will you? I mean, not to say when you're going to finish this, but <laughs> when, like, when will we know what the evolution of that has been? What, what's your well, the project runs till August 2024. Now, I'm I, I'm conscious that as I'm saying this, I'm not on the tech side of it, so I don't want to make any promises those guys can't keep. But they, you know, we're, we're already kind of they, they've they've now got all the all of the data with the women's tournament in uh, in England finished. Um, and, and we're already kind of doing more specific uh, looks at certain things to sort of uh, trace things. So, for instance, we're uh, combing a lot of data recently to do with um, female pundits and broadcasters in uh, the Men's Euro 2020 last summer. And basically a lot, a lot of broadcasters across the Anglosphere in UK, Ireland, Australia, America had more uh, female pundits, commentators on their teams, whether that, you know, triggered a subsequent backlash or not. And we've been looking at the uh, the reaction to that and kind of, you know, finding the, I suppose, the again, the, the nuance, the different kind of the stuff you see there. So hopefully, like, that as an output, will I would hope to have it out in, you know, a few months' time in terms of, like, uh, the overall project outputs. Yeah, you're looking at another uh, 18 months, two years. But again, you know, this is this is to address what's a long-term problem in a long-term way. Rome wasn't built in a day. What's your suspicion on when this thing really took an upward spike in terms of online hate on mainstream social media platforms? Like, is, is it basically as soon as millions of people started using these platforms, there was just this flow of hate? Or did it take a little bit of time for that to catch up? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's always there to an extent. I think what's interesting is if you look at the, the one of the first things we do is look at all the, the research into online hate and sport more widely. And what you see with that is a huge up, upsurge from 2016. Like, there, there's only, you know a handful of papers according to the criteria we used before 2016 and what's the big uh, trigger there is the Colin Kaepernick taking the knee in American football you know to protest against um, uh, systematised violence against black people in America uh, and, and that triggers a lot more research and uh, you know unfortunately you also see then a, a lot of kind of uh, hate you know, almost like piggybacking, I suppose, on the, the reaction to Kaepernick in that way. Uh, I, I, I think it changes too as, as social media evolves. Like, I mean, infamously you have to, I can't remember what year it was, but somewhere at a time in the like, late aughts, early 2010s where like, Rio Ferdinand asked Wayne Rooney or vice versa for a lift to training on Twitter. Really like, you yeah. know, like, yeah. there, there's a weird sense of it not, you know, of a, like a lack of distance and an intimacy. And I think it's more, um, you know, when it becomes this this big... Uh, machine, as it were, with, with more and more people feeding into it. And I, oh, I think, because I think with that brings this sense of distance. There's a lot spoken about anonymity with this. A lot of people we've talked to will argue, you know, anonymity is the, the main, I suppose, thing that, that fosters the hate, like so long mm-hmm. as people can do it with no danger of being found out. But I don't think that's quite the case because you have a lot of the people we've encountered, like, you know, their accounts are there. Even there was a, a FIFA commission study recently 
um, on the, the most recent AFCON and the most recent Euros that found half of the players in both tournaments were subjected to abuse. And they found, I think it was 80 or 90% of the accounts that were abusing could be traced. So I think it's less anonymity than this sense of people kind of, I suppose doing it from a space where they they feel like they can get away with it or they're justified in doing it like if you're you know one person with uh, two dozen followers shouting at a celebrity with you know a footballer with millions of followers it feels I, I don't know like even if it's not anonymous it doesn't feel intimate it doesn't feel real or something uh, and, and I think like that you know on some level allows people to do it. but even as I say that I'm kind of wary of armchair diagnosing everyone with it because what we have found is you, you do see a market difference for instance to go back to that paper we're working on on um, female pundits share the euros what roughly the reactions to those you kind of see it in three ways and and one is positive and it, that shouldn't be you know understated there are a lot of people who are just like oh yeah you know these are really good broadcasters whatever uh, two is kind of like gendered criticism that's like seemingly uh you know not not heated it's just like uh whatever rubbish uh, punditry there from alex scott can't stand that woman but it's kind of pointed reactions to the to gender and if you search for like whatever other pundits alan Shearer, richie sadley or whatever there's no there's no kind of equivalent like that man is awful um so those ones are sort of more like latent what you might call latently sexist and then you have the very conspiratorial stuff where it's like the only reason these people are on our telly is because of some bbc rte espn woke agenda or whatever and you know tied into other kind of hateful conspiracy uh, conspiracy stuff so when i'm talking about the kind of mindset of individual abusers there there is definitely a difference there between people who are kind of swept up in the tide of this and it has become normalized in some way and and they might kind of they mightn't do it in their daily lives, but social media has become a space where they feel it's okay to do it versus the people who are very much tied into kind of furthering this because of their own, you know, beliefs and that, like, it's wrong for women to be in football or black people to be playing for England or whatever else it might be. Is one other aspect of this as well that has mushroomed in that period of time is that um, people who previously would have felt uh, I'm not going to express my hatred here because I'll be the only one doing it that there's a sense of cover from um, us doing it you know if 10 of us Manchester United fans or Middlesbrough fans or Villa fans or Ireland fans all say the same thing well then they're not going to come after all of us and then is there also another element where actually there are organised campaigns where you know somebody's saying well look let's all just start giving out about this and turn this into something yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's something we, we definitely want to look at later in, in, in the project is how this ties in to kind of more organized, say, you know, far right organizations and so on. Like, are they kind of actively fostering this in a way that, say, during the Brexit referendum in Britain, you had, I think it was a tour of all Twitter traffic was Russian bots preaching pro-Brexit stuff. Um, now, I don't know whether, how you know, how many of the kind of accounts we found are bots or not, but there definitely is a sense of astroturfing of people artificially kind of uh, get, getting on this hate bandwagon to further particular causes. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that's there. There's that sense of, uh, you don't want to say mob mentality because mob mentality implies a kind of spontaneity in the mob forming. I, I think there are kind of like other forces that work. And, yeah. 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 That would be really interesting to see because, like, I mean, I think anybody who is as online as we are in our jobs, you certainly sense that, like, oh, today something, somebody, a, flick, a, a switch has been flicked and this is now an issue. And there's going to be a surge in it over the next while. And then that surge brings people with it who are oblivious to the fact that actually uh, somewhere an organization has decided that today this is the agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, certainly in the stuff like I've gone through, you see kind of repeated words or even like, you know, 
literally repeated tweets or Instagram posts word for word that are obviously being kind of derived from some central uh, source. But also, you, you know, you, you sort of see people, I suppose, having their outrage stoked in that way that may, maybe they're not aware that, yeah, they're like the the person kind of stoking their outrage isn't someone as um, legitimately or uh, neutrally invested in this as they are. It's someone with a, you know, with, with a cause behind it. Yeah, they're, they're, these people are being useful idiots mm-hmm. uh, by um, by boosting the signal. Lest anybody think this is um, a Premier League story or uh, an American story, in the Star today they're reporting that a League of Ireland footballers received death threats in the aftermath of a match on Monday. Cork City striker Lewis Britton highlighted the abuse he was sent on social media after their clash with Waterford. He came off the bench for the First Division leaders having spent five months on loan at the Blues this season. And so... Um, Stuff included that he'd have his throat slit should he step foot in Waterford again. Other messages saw users wish Britain to do his ACL, urging him to book a hospital appointment and wanting him to suffer a career-ending injury. So this is not a, an English problem. This is a, a global problem and it's an Irish problem too. Absolutely. And, you know, like any kind of global problem, there's very... Um local specificities to it so you know in the Irish case you have the fact that like a lot of the clubs wouldn't have the facilities at their disposal to uh, police their social media or provide kind of training that you know rich Premier League or even championship clubs might have so that kind of uh, you know often with some of them having spoken to people um, club officials at League of Ireland clubs often like the social media account might be run on a volunteer or semi-voluntary basis so you do have people swimming against the tide to attempt to stop this and what's another local factor too with Ireland as you mentioned while I'm on it is you find a lot of the abuse comes from uh, international users from gambling so you'll have these say you know people placing massive accumulators in Asia and whatever like Bowes losing to Pats or like you know Cork losing to Wexford or something will mess it up for them and they'll be hurling really vicious abuse at uh, you know the players or, or, or club accounts or everything like that and there's obviously limited uh, capacity as to what the clubs themselves can actually do and acting against these people well beyond the jurisdiction of the Garda you know on the, on the other side of the world Yeah it's, it's funny because we, we actually have a tweet here from Tom Gary that was actually talking about um, an NWSL club Angel City who've partnered with um, an English based safety tech company Go Bubble, which apparently allows you to plug in your social accounts and protect them from online hate bullying racism etc and they're the first American professional team to protect a team in this way do you, do you see this becoming more of, of um, so? It's funny. There might be a tech solution to this tech problem, uh, as opposed to actually a societal solution to the societal problem. That's the other aspect of all this. The tech companies are probably very interested in this research. Going, well, you know, what, what can we do? How can we stop this? Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I, I definitely, it's something we've become aware of as we've gone on. It's this sort of cottage industry and what you might call anti-hate software, um, and it, it's. I mean, it, 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 looking could not be anything with it, but a positive if, if you know players aren't being subjected to hate that they wear because of this. But it does have its limits. For one, some of the people we've spoken to within this industry have found that uh, you know clubs they've offered it to are, are actually kind of unwilling to take it up. And you know, for, from what they say, at least that the price is relatively small potatoes when it comes to the you know the budget of a, a major football club. But they've often found that the clubs are kind of wary of being seen to police their own fan base and that this will upset it. So it will only become an issue when it begins actively impacting on the player's performance and then they'll step in. The other aspect to it, too, is there will be certain forms of abuse they're more willing to um, use this technology to police than others. 
so the, the tech will kind of flag all of these, you know, comments. No, no, I should say these. These there are a lot of different tech platforms doing this, and the service they offer varies from platform to platform. But by and large, it will flag these, you know, like problematic comments as they come in. And what some of them have found is that, say, clubs will be very quick to act on. Uh, racist comments, say against you know black or just any kind of uh, you know players of color, but say they won't act on on homophobic comments. So and what we kind of speculate this about is because if obviously if you say Marcus Rashford is getting you know like anti-black racist uh, um, Twitter comments at him or Instagram comments or whatever, they're an attack on him personally. But the thing about this online hate is it serves two functions, particularly in a game as global as football. Like it attacks the individual targeted, but it also attacks who they wider represent. So if you're attacking Marcus Rashford for, you know, being black and playing football, that's essentially like an attack on all black people involved in the game, saying, you know, you shouldn't be involved or if you are involved, you're going to suffer this racist abuse. So I think is if clubs, you know, see it like homophobic abuse against players and they're thinking, well, he's got a wife and kids at home, so like this is water off a duck's back, like maybe it is maybe it isn't but it's all that abuse is also serving the function of like to you know queer people within the game more widely you're not welcome here so that's that's one limitation with it and that like it puts it puts it at the um I suppose the uh, impetus for solving this problem solely in the clubs who particularly um, this isn't so much in the case with League of Ireland clubs but particularly with say like Premier League Serie A uh, clubs you know they're owned by like billionaires in like from completely other countries who may have really no interest in what we might call like the social good of a football club and kind of you know fostering a better atmosphere within a particular community um, the other thing too is that like it doesn't actually stamp out the problem at its heart it you know it, it it kind of stops it from getting to source, as it were, from getting to the target. But you know, these it, it, and it, uh, some some of these platforms will give the the clients, the clubs, the ability to report the abusing users to Twitter, to Instagram, whatever. But uh, not necessarily all of them will. The other thing I, I would say too, and I'm conscious that again, I'm not the tech expert in this project, but what we have come across so far is that you get a lot of false positives with tech-based moderation. For one, a lot of research done so far is mainly on like text-based stuff so you know particular hate terms and so on but obviously emojis and images can be used in a particular way to convey hate and they can be used in a way that it would be very hard to pick up on so say like something as innocuous as like you know like the vomiting emoji or something right like uh jer sends out a picture of like you know him and his wife on there of like a anniversary or he sends the vomit emoji just a bit of banter like at a room grand you know uh some someone puts up an article about like a uh player coming out as gay or something and they attached a vomit emoji that's clearly like a you know this, this is sick whatever yeah. but you can't you, you can't really build a technology that combs for an emoji as innocuous as that um, equally too I mean even in the text based stuff you have a lot of false positives like uh, we, we're doing another uh, paper on kind of this main sponsor brands of Euro 2020 and how they reacted to particular homophobic incidents during the tournament you remember with the um, the German FA wanting to light the Allianz Stadium in rainbow colours and UEFA not lend them and so on so we were doing this you know combing it, our data set for you know particular like uh, uh, homophobic hate terms we got a load of false positives for like Scottish striker Lyndon Dykes you know um, now that's a like laughable like uh, you know um, just mistaking it but it's just to underline how these purely tech-based thing, there is, at least in my experience, there is a limit to them. And as good as it is that there are services out there that will protect people from this, 
I think it would be a worry if particularly the major tech platforms themselves rush to this as, okay, grand. Well, of course they will the because it, it, it gets them off the hook. That's mm-hmm. the point of, of, of all this is that it allows Twitter and Instagram and whoever else to monetize the hate because they continue to drive traffic off the hate. And that we found... Like eventually, Twitter got rid of Trump from their platform, but they made millions and millions, oh, well, and, millions yeah. and millions and millions, like of having him there in the first place. So, um, the 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 responsibility that they bear, it's going to be very interesting to see how much of that comes out over the course of the project. What's What's interesting with that is people who've spoken to in, in say the FAI and in anti hate organisations in Ireland, I've asked them about their experience of speaking to the tech platforms because so many of them are based here, you know, their European headquarters. And whether when when it comes to kind of charging them with like, you know, doing something about the problem of hating football, whether the tech platforms themselves cite practical barriers like, you know, this is just like the, the volume of traffic on Twitter and Instagram on Facebook on, you know, so on, on TikTok, whatever. It's just so much we, we can't police it or whether they cite it on ideological grounds of, well, we know it's a problem, but we are so committed to free speech that, it, you know, we, we can't, uh, we won't allow ourselves to step in. And they said, the people from the FAI and, and from um, anti-hate organizations said it's very much like their experience has been tech platforms will cite ideological reasons, they'll cite their commitment to free speech. Now, possibly they might say there are also practical barriers, but I do find it interesting that like when asked about the problem, their, you know, their response to it is to kind of double down on this idea of, of free speech, which is a very important right, but like, you know, you have an issue here where it's a right that is clashing with someone's right to be protected from abuse and a right to kind of, you know, follow or participate in the sport they love without being hounded for it. Yeah, it's pretty horrific. The, the, one of the other solutions to the, the data issue is that you're doing long form interviews with people. And that's kind of one of the reasons why you're here today is to ask people who have experienced this to get in touch with their stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I said, what we really want to get is is kind of across the board uh, nuanced look at this as possible. So, um, like anyone who who's experienced or observed online hate in, in football in the UK, Ireland, anywhere else, we'd love for them to get in touch with us. With uh, you can find us on, on Twitter, Toef Now, Instagram, Toef Now. Again, I'm aware of the irony of a <laughs> project against online hate, but like this is the this is the sea in which you got to swim. You can also email us at info at toef.com. That's T O H I F. And on the website toef.com, on the contact section, there's a text box that people can just write in there their experiences uh, with this issue because we're just you know fascinated to see no doubt there's the volume of it of so much of it suggests that like there is going to be so much going on that we don't know and we're always wary of uh, leaning or depending on one particular stakeholder's uh, experience of this more than another so like anyone who's gotten observation or an experience of this problem is uh, is interesting and valuable though so yeah please do get in touch that acronym is tackling online hate and football t-o-h-i-f That's, yeah yeah okay and so uh, we'll we'll share all the details on our socials as well it's really fascinating stuff and it's important work and it's great to know that it's being done in ireland as well as as in the uk so uh colin we're very grateful to you for coming in this morning and sharing that with us well thanks so much for having me i really appreciate it lads it's uh, 19 minutes past nine. If you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's on OTB Sports Radio today. At one o'clock, OTB Gold is Manu Petit. Koi Gig is live from three. Our retro panel is telling it like it is at four. Inside Harrington's gaff is OTB Gold at six. And then the show is live tonight with Richie McCormick as host. You can follow off the ball across all our social channels after the break. We're live with Phil Egan's Deal or No Deal. I signed for them after the Euros and after my first day's training I was driving home I was actually thinking Regretting it What have I done? Like I walked into a circus It's amazing isn't it?
right, 25 minutes past nine this morning. Um, we have Phil Egan with us. Phil. Morning, lads. How, How are you? All good. Uh, I don't I, we, should we, I, I find it hard not to start at Man United. But actually, you know what? I'm not going to start at Man United. I'm going to start in this studio. I got laughed at for saying that Newcastle would finish ahead of Man United. I said this, I'd say, last March or April this season. I said that next season, I bet you my, 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 my behind you because I got laughed at in this very studio. You're no one's laughing laugh. now, Phil. No one's laughing now. No, nobody's laughing right now. Well, the only laughing people are doing is at Manchester United and what a shambles they are. But Newcastle have started okay. They obviously won on the opening weekend. They were quite lucky to, to come out of Brighton with a draw, but that's why I'm not they saying signed, they're brilliant. That's why I'm they saying. signed Nick Pope to make saves. Yeah, and I, I still think that there's a bit of activity to be done. So this morning, news breaks that they've asked to be kept informed about four players at Chelsea Callum Hudson Odoi, Connor Gallagher, Armando Broja, and Christian Pulisic. Can I just make a point of information here? If they end up making a signing like this, you're not allowed to do the victory lap because oh, I am. this is a transformative... The no, whole point it, that people laughed you out of studio is that Newcastle United didn't do the business that maybe people expected. No, I, that, was, that, was, I, that was back in March and April I was saying this. Money, though. Sorry, of maybe course. And also, you're right. I mean, we're two games into the season, so yeah. it's all finished. Well, th- those four players you mentioned, I think the one that Newcastle... <laughs> should sign would be Broya they need they've obviously got Callum Wilson they've got Chris Wood but he would give them something different as well and a bit of depth because Wilson has had injury problems and Chris Wood I just don't think is is good enough I, I still firmly believe that when they signed Wood they were signing him to score a few goals but they're also saying to Burnley we're taking yeah. one of your boys yeah. away it was a good, good strategy in the yeah. short term and he's he's, he's, a, he's a top Ten, as in between eighth and twelfth striker, yeah. but um, Broya might be like a top six striker. Well, the ceiling is much far higher. higher. Yeah, yeah. Um, and look, you know, next season they'll have a conference league campaign or something to go through. Potentially, po- possibly, yeah. You wouldn't be surprised if they end up in the conference league. That's like the level they're at. They're definitely on the way up, and we knew this was going to happen anyway. Like we have a fair idea that in a few years, right, it's going to be Newcastle and City going for the Premier League title. Surely you'd have Conor Gallagher ahead of Armando Broya, though, would you? In terms of a, a player from that list, you'd like to have in your team. I know you're talking probably thinking as well of what Chelsea are willing to do as well. Yeah. Whether they're willing to allow Gallagher to leave, but you know he's he's getting cameos off the bench. It's very hard for him when he got a season under his belt at Palace last season, and he was so good and got into the England squad. But it could potentially be easier to prize away from Chelsea then, because I guess they've possibly assessed what he can do. I know he's had his. Troubles with injury. Yeah, he's still only twenty three. Chris Pulisic. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Hudson Adoy again, a lot of talent, but ne- never really recovered from that Achilles injury. When I say never recovered, just hasn't been able to get a run of games consistently. And he's been tried in a few different positions with Tuchel, including that right wing back position. Which I know it's it's wing back. It's almost it's a hybrid position with Tuchel. The way he changes his tactics, which you would have seen from Loftus Cheek the other day. But yeah, he's probably the most likely I'd say of the four to probably be loaned out or oh. whether he goes on a permanent deal but it's hard to know it, I think um, Chelsea at some point are going to start having to balance the books if the Fafana yeah. signing Fafana looks like he's going to try and push that yeah. through right yeah uh, you can see why he'd want it because it doesn't look great for Brendan Rodgers right now that the club are letting players leave but they're not signing players and Fafana is thinking you know if I play for Chelsea I'm going to be playing for a better team and I'll be rich 
well, I'm sure his bank balance will um, look a bit healthier, all right. And do you know what? I, I wondered with Fofana, obviously, the, we saw how much potential he had, then he had the injury. He's back in now, and I thought maybe he might stick with Leicester for another season because he needs to get back playing regular football. But he could also be thinking, if anything, I've learned over the last few years that football is so unpredictable. When you're at the top of your game, you can get struck down with a bad injury. So he'd be thinking now is the time to move. And also if he wants to maybe get into that France World Cup squad, this could be the time to move. And he could be thinking as well, Brendan Rodgers mightn't be around for much longer. No, it's hard to know what's going to happen at Leicester. There's a possibility that they sell him and or Madison and they sign and they have a lot of replacements who are ready to go who are nearly as good because their record in the transfer market has been sensational. Yeah, it has. But then like, what's going to happen to Tielemans and... Like they they have signed some some good players, but they actually like say they signed Daka, and we all thought, yeah, this is a brilliant signing, but just didn't get going last season. Now he's still very young, and it takes time to adapt to a new league. And they they kind of showed that they were still very reliant on Jamie Vardy. But is it ridiculous that I hope that they sign Andrew Omobamadeli to replace Wesley Fofana? If he goes, that there's like That's a, not a bad shout, you know. I mean, the, the, Premier League experience, similar age profile. Yeah talent on the ball would fit in the team like he was Nathan Collins had been linked with Leicester as well yeah which would have been a good move but they uh, need again, to sell like him first t- there are two teams that play three at the back which yeah. at the moment that's where Stephen Kenny is he's playing three at the back it's true now um, Dean Smith was playing two at the back last night according yeah. to my live score app anyway I didn't see yeah. anything well there I mean they, they've kind of they didn't start the season great but they they, they obviously picked things up last night I think Dean Smith's a good manager I think he's um, I think he'll turn things around for them um, Anthony Gordon looks like he's ready to force a move as well so if they sign if I mean big ifs right so if they sign for Fana that's going to be 75 80 million right um, if they sign Gordon that's another 45 50 that's another 120 million yeah. they're going to have to sell some of those players to balance the books yeah just I, for fi- financial fair play yeah I mean, I, like financial fair play it it exists, but I don't really believe it. <laughs> so I'm sure there's always a way around it. And it's like the tooth fairy, yeah. Um, so if they do, I, I'd be surprised if Anthony Gordon left. Maybe Everton would be thinking this is too good to turn down this offer. But Anthony Gordon, you know, he's he's already a bit of a hero in that Everton team. He's as bad as last season was. He was one of the bright. Sparks. He was one of the positives, a local lad that came in and made a real difference. It, it would be a, a big move from. It's a lot of cash, and they'd be yeah. able to buy a couple of players extra and just get a bit of depth. Yeah. Well, see, I just think Everton are in so much trouble. The, they need as much quality in that squad as they can get. Yeah. But do you get two players who are good, who can play, and you double the amount of minutes you're going to get from them yeah. instead of Anthony Gordon? And Yeah, you bring in players, maybe you bring in players that have Premier League experience, but it's such a risk to bring in new players that don't have Premier League experience and you're basically counting on them to hit the ground running, whereas Gordon now has got his bit of Premier yeah. League experience. no, it's fair, it's fair. Uh, so, Adrian Rabiot, not going to happen you were like this wasn't a good deal in the first place in terms of like he didn't think he was good enough really to influence the team no like I said he was an improvement on McTominay and Fred but again as I said that's never really a good starting point for any argument to bring in a player accurately predicted that the the mother issue would be important in this and so it has apparently the agent has said no this is not getting not getting enough money it's not a great start if 
you haven't even joined the club and there's issues around wage structures. So you want players to come to your club to play because they want to be there. And look, they, they deserve to be paid what they're worth. But I've always felt with someone like Rabio, he believes he's worth a lot more. He believes he's a better player than he is. I think he's he's a fine player. Yeah, but there's, there's multiple trouble with the wage issues at Manchester United, where he'd be coming in and he'd be underpaid according to like what say Jesse Lingard might have got paid in the past or whoever, and uh, that whole poison is in the club and needs to be extracted before you can fix it. Um, there's so much to fix at the club. Get rid of Ronaldo now, irrespective of whether or not you have a replacement. See, that's the thing. If you were asked me. To ask me, should they get rid of Ronaldo, I would say yes. But if you also said, um, what? how could you see Ronaldo staying? I would be, if they haven't got anyone else. Well, it might be chicken and egg. You have to get rid of him before you can get somebody else in. When he's telling us, we've got to wait a couple of weeks. Yeah, what's that about? To find out the truth. And I, f- I find that a bit strange if... Like, does that mean that he's leaving? And then when he leaves, he'll say, right, here's what really happened. But they were not very good. I, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and look, uh, what truth bombs? Ronaldo was thinking, I'm at the end of my career. I'm an absolute legend of the game. Yeah. I deserve better. I don't want to be playing with some of these jumps. Or, like, I'm looking around going, I don't need this. I, I, sh- I should be playing on a Tuesday and Wednesday night in the Champions League, not Thursday night. But is he, is he Gene Hackman at uh, the end of the Western with the gun in his face going, I don't deserve this. Dessert's got nothing to do with it. And Clint Eastwood blows his head off. <laughs> is that what's happening here? Possibly. He's he's Eric thinking. Ten Hag is Clint Eastwood. <laughs> well, do you know what? If Ten Hag is going to make this thing work at Manchester United, I I always felt that he had to do it without Ronaldo and start from scratch. Yes, yeah, I would agree and build up. And actually, and I actually think if if there's an offer on the table for Marcus Rashford at the moment, go go on. Like you don't need him, and he's no. not going to work for you. Well, it, do you know what? It's such a disappointment because. Three years ago, I was thinking Rashford could be a sensational player and have such a a bright future ahead of him. And but like many players at Manchester United, it just hasn't worked out for them. But there's there's a talent there, but so far we haven't seen it at the start of this season. And just even things like he's coming short for the ball. And Rashford, when you watch Rashford, the best version of Rashford is there's space in behind defenders and he runs into it, and you can't live with that. Casemiro, a good signing? It'd be a great signing for United, but why is he leaving Real Madrid, the Spanish champions, the European champions, Champions League football? They've signed a couple of young midfielders. He's thinking, I probably won't have to do as much running as I've I've had to do. I won't have to play every game. And I've got a World Cup to look forward to. So you can't see this deal happening? I'd be very surprised. I mean, if you're Casemiro or you're his representatives, it makes zero sense. But the brand is big. I played for Real Madrid. I played uh, for Man United. Like I this. think this is just like complete notions. I think it's like it, what what what, is, what are Manchester United doing? Like the headlines see eyeing up Casemiro, considering fifty million pound move for Casemiro. Says Sky Sports. Like what? Well, Manchester United considering but Casemiro. Real not very rich, like com- compared to with what they used to be. That you can get players. I just wonder. So Varane came and Varane never plays because he's injured. Yeah. Casemiro plays. He's yeah, fit. Yeah. He's good. He's like he's durable. Yeah, he would actually be a, a proper. No, he'd be, like, he's he'd an be, asset to Real Madrid, let alone Manchester. Why would he drop down so many levels to? He's like his contract twenty twenty five. I know, obviously, that adds to the value of the, the transfer fee. But 
I just think it'd be madness if you're a Casemiro. Like the thing is about the whole Manchester United situation is that it's got a lot worse from three, four years ago. Like yeah. people are still dealing in the idea that Manchester United are a great club that are on poor times. They're a terrible club. Like they're in a terrible place. They're going to finish below Newcastle. Like possibly. Like this uh, this idea that there's still a big club that are chasing past glories. Like. The, those glories are a long, long time ago. I, I could buy that argument when, like, Angel Di Maria was coming. Yeah. Like, but in 2022, I, like, I just don't see this at all. That that ship is long sails. Yeah. The, the more time goes like goes by, the further they get, and that's it. And they they have to accept it before they they fix it. And sometimes I don't think they have accepted it. But like, there's no doubt. Like, they're a massive club, and the brand is huge and all. But what's going on in the club from the ownership to I don't know what their football, their, their recruitment depart, department. I don't know what they're doing. Like from a footballer's perspective, the like that brand, like people aren't stupid. Like he's, he's not. He's not being like, oh, look at that that crest. And I think, I mean, I think how, you're wrong about that. I think the brand is very powerful. Open, by the way, it's like, cracked. Like in, in what in what sense is the brand powerful for a player right now? Well, if if you are part of the team who brings it back, you are legend for all time. Like the the team that won the league under Ferguson was legend for all time. It's like your Kerry team just broke a famine of eight years when the famine eventually breaks for Manchester United that group are we are all time legends of course like there's a, there's a power in that you know, two weeks some, some two of the other lads do the heavy lifting first where you think yeah exactly I just wait a couple of years to see how this project's working out and then you jump on board this is think, two weeks before the deadline enough. but I think that if, if you're Casemiro or somebody of that level you can actually come in and go right Harry Maguire has to go out of the team you've got to go out of the team you've got to go out of the team this is my team now I'm the captain of like Manchester Ronaldo United. was supposed to do <laughs> But Ronaldo was never going to do that because he's not, he's not at his peak. Casemiro was saying is close enough to his peak. Yeah, he's... he's 29, 30, why can't Ronaldo do 30, that if he's yeah. not at his peak? Like, Ronaldo is Ronaldo. He's because one he of the was most on his way out and he's, no, like, he's nowhere near as good as he used to be and he can't dominate games the way he was once capable of doing. It's, and not, also, it's not about that, though. That's, it's not, a, that's not his character. He's playing in a better team, though. He'd score... Like, he's still scored a rake of goals last season he'd still score goals if they were a more functional team like, this is true I, I like yeah, maybe someone from within changing uh, being the person to change the culture of the club I think that Ten Hag is going to make a couple of good signings if the Ten Hag area is going to work he's going to have to make a couple of good signings and those good signings have to come in and, and seize control of the team Casemiro might be able to do that somebody of that standing would, would actually change the entire perception of everything around the club and so that's why I think there's a power in that and that's the dream you sell to him yeah. that's what I would be doing it is a dream I think it's a tough sell though it is a tough sell it is but these footballers are all sales pitch in there I think. Adrian Rabio thinks he's the world's best footballer yeah do you know like but he's he, not that hard to sell to people but, you're, you're the world's best footballer but he's sold like Rabio has sold that to himself though you got to sell this to Casemiro who's looking like he plays at Luka Modric every day yeah imagine yeah. going from Modric to McTominay I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult. <laughs> right. That's today's deal or no deal. It's 9.40. Uh, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Back tomorrow with Gregor Paul of the New Zealand Herald on the back of the Ian Foster, Joe Schmidt news that broke this morning. We'll have Jim White and Phil McNulty on talking about their new book, Red on Red, which documents the Manchester United-Liverpool rivalry. Uh, we've got combat sports correspondent Alan Dawson previewing Anthony Joshua versus Alexander Usyk part two, plus more besides now. Make sure you tune back into us at 11, sorry, 10.50, 10 to 11 this morning. We're going to be talking live with the man of the moment, Israel Alatunde. That is coming your way on our YouTube and on our sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.